Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Let The Music Do The Talking podcast. And my first ever guest, I wanted to get him down. We've had millions of discussions and debates and lengthy coffee rants about his career, about rave scene as a whole, about life and politics, but we're not, we're not doing politics today, are we? Good. <laughs> we're not doing politics and football, we're not going there either. We can do the that. timing's bad. Uh, so yeah, I've got Paul, Paul O'Sullivan. Hi mate. Welcome pal. Hiya. So, the idea with these podcasts essentially is, well, we're going to get some people on from the local rave scene and beyond, uh, and want to learn about them as people, uh, the, the rave scene, the perceptions of things old and new, your DJing and life as a whole really, so thought these podcasts would be a great idea to get people down like yourself and uh, just have a, a chat and I, I think people will genuinely be interested in hearing about some of the stuff they might not know from over the years. Or well, they can skip forward. Or oh, they can skip forward. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure they won't. So, Paul, first thing is welcome, obviously. Nice. Uh, Thanks for having me. And... I'd just like to talk a little bit about your childhood and your upbringing and where you lived and all that, your background. Yes, yes. So I, uh, I was left in a sewer and I was... No. <laughs> <laughs> grew up, pit village like you, mate. Grew up, grew up in Thriber, Pit Village. So uh, tough, tough life, tough knocks, right? You know, it's, it's council house kid, nothing special. Um, mum and dad, fairly noble. Dad, fireman. Mum worked at well, Securico for a while until she stole all the money. No, she didn't. So I should say that. Uh, grew up with our kid. Yeah, did pretty well at school, but you know, nothing particularly outstanding or noteworthy. You know, didn't come from a gilded background or any of that nonsense. Um, and just then stumbled into college, and that's kind of where this kind of music... Well, it started before that, but it kind of started. Um, I was musical at school, so I played percussion, so I did exams, drums and timps and all that kind of shit. Played a little bit of keyboard... Messed around, kind of did school bands, so when poor bastards who used to have to go off and do the summer holidays at uh, Oakwood School and stuff, and then they'd play this concert at the end of it, yeah, I did all that shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's so works. So kind of music was always around, and mum was quite into music, um, into Motown, Beatles and stuff like that, so playing their records, so that's kind of, I suppose that's where it sort of started in a way. That was going to be my next question, actually, like your first memories of music, really, and God, how yeah. it led you into... Oh, it led you into DJing. Um, so there weren't massive music heads like you see some people where they've got the parents got tons of albums and stuff, but we're kind of into music. And you know, I grew up in that generation where you know you'd listen to charts, and you know, and then when you, your dad, mum, dad got like a cassette player and recorder, you'd record charts, and you'd be trying to pause it on the bits where they were like doing the introductions. So you could listen to charts in the car, and, and then on your Walkman when Walkmans came on, yeah, I'm that fucking old. Right? Showing his age now. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm like, yeah. What, what's a Walkman, Dad? Yeah, <laughs> shut up. Um, so yeah, listening to all that shit. And as a kid, I grew up again. Show me age. So. It was the tail end of the punk era when I was aware of pop music. So you got that. Um, you then got sort of a little um, spurt of the electronic stuff, which is what really lit me up. You've got um, the kind of reprise of um, the rock era. You've got the, the punk leading to Scar as well, which was a fantastic time. So sort of late 70s into early 80s, just a massive sort of spread of music. 
Um, and of course, you had like New Wave, your Duran Durans, your Kraftwerk, stuff like that, and Depeche Mode, which were a massive influence. So as I'm getting older and I've got my own money and I'm like either taping mates' albums or buying albums or whatever else, that was kind of happening in the background and I suppose forming the, the taste in music. And it was always that more synth kind of music, a bit more industrial as well. There's so, so. many parallels, isn't there, between that music then and what's even still now? Like, it started, it up, it started the ball oh, rolling for electronic music, didn't it? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, you know, you've got people like Herbie Hancock, you've got Tangerine Dream, you've got all these, like, weird, like, chin-scratching, <laughs> fucking strange bands, whatever, artists. You've got, like, Jean-Michel Jarre, obviously, you've got this prog rock band like Sky. So all these, these just different weird influences... Um, and 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 that, obviously that, that had, a, had an impact. Here we are, right? So uh, so yes, yeah, so that's kind of that, that was school music. That's how it came about, I suppose. I'm just thinking like punk and all that rebellious stuff and all that, and then uprising. But we're going to get into that. Yeah, yeah, it's kind yeah, of all. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're really days in DJing. I know we've spoke about this, and I'm going to drop you in it. Me and Paul have got something in common, and I know there's a few other people in our scene that that have, but we both learnt our trade doing disco DJing. <laughs> uh, Cheers, pal. <laughs> so, yeah, tell, tell, us, tell us a bit yeah, more about it. Go on, go on <laughs> Well, I mean, in fairness, I'm, I'm not going to be bashful about it because it was, it was good fun. So, when I was at college, a good pal of mine was into his music, um, as was I, so all that, getting albums, bits and pieces. And he introduced me to another mate of his because he, my mate Liam, was, was kind of doing dabbling bits of DJing. They were going out to Fiofis in Rotherham, which is... Blue coat, whatever the hell it's called nowadays. So that was kind of like the cool bar to go into when you go into Harvey's. So Darren was DJing, he was a bit of a bit of a pose, good looking lad. Um, so he was like doing his bits and pieces and he he basically let me have a go. I remember turn up, it was on or around my birthday in 88. So I went down to see him and he was like, oh, just put some records on. He was going to chat some bird up or something. So I just put some records on. I've obviously always played records, so I'm like, well, this would be quite cool to do this. So he said, oh, we'll come down to the Star Inn in Rawmarsh. and you can come and warm up for me so my my, my old mum bless her um, she used to run me across (laughs) I was buying my records and I was like doing the warm up for him and then I'd I'd kind of sit back and he'd do his thing and and it went from there and then I managed to get a a job with a guy who got this 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 mobile disco He he was a Funny little spud. It was called Atomic Lightning Disco. Shane, it was called. It was a little, little oddball, lived in Eastwood. And his disco, he knocks about with a guy called Butch Slaney, who's not around anymore, another good, good lad who I've DJed for. So Butch had Lightning Disco, so his mate called his Atomic Lightning. He's like, well, just, just think of something. Anyway, anyway. So I played for this little, little oddball with his like, ancient equipment and first gigs were like um, late 88 so I'd been warming up in the star in and kind of like getting my confidence and there I am like thrust out playing this wedding or whatever it was and I swear to god my ass was twitching <laughs> and I'm like what am I going to do what if they hate me whatever else you've got to pick the mic up and try and get them on a little bit of like baptism of fire so um I sort of managed it. And I always remember Deacon Blue Reel going, kid was like the big track and they kept coming and asking for it. So I'm thinking, thank fuck for that. I'll keep, <laughs> keep playing, I'll keep them happy, it'll be all right. So you're playing, is it vinyl? Is it vinyl? Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. What equipment is it? What are the, what are the decks? Oh, I can't remember what he had at the time, some crusty things, but the, the, <laughs> the, the decks for DJs, mobile DJs, were Cloud, which was... A, oh, yeah, all one, you, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. The little very speeds like this with a belt drive and, oh... Just you, Google this if you've no yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah, like Google pre- Cloud pre- equipment. Pre- yeah, 
it's like, all right, granddad. <laughs> yeah, we, they're, they're only 33 and 45. There are no 78. There. We were just past that era. So, uh, so yeah, so we're playing on all that stuff. And, um, and that's how I cut my teeth. So I was, like me and Liam were still going record shops. We went up to uh, Manchester Underground, which isn't there anymore, where the Corn Exchange is now and other places. This was before the bomb. Um, so buying all the music we wanted to buy and we were dreaming of playing. Acid House was kicking off. Uh, but, you know, I was just playing discos. You know, you might want to dare and maybe play something a little more like clubby or whatever and you might get bollocks off the, mm. the pub owner. Because I was playing like, you know, midweek. So I'll be playing places like the Fall Stuff, which is no longer there in Rotherham. I've done Dusty's in Rotherham at the end, Edge of Canclo. That was an eye-opener. So all of these places, plus your weddings, your bar mitzvahs and all that stuff. So that's where you learn your craft. That's, that's one of the reasons. And I know we've had this discussion, but I, I genuinely think that some of the ethics of that kind of DJing is completely transferable to, to DJing at raves or festivals or whatever. Yeah. And I, I wonder if... And, People who are watching mine comment on this, but modern DJs who are, and I'm not, I'm not one of these who's like new technology is cheating and, and and blah blah blah. But I think that learning your trade authentically like that, where you might think, it, what's the pressure of DJing at a wedding? But if if people are expecting you to play music to make them dance, if you're now DJing at a rave in 2023 and people aren't dancing, it's your job to make them dance so even though the music and the technology and all that fundamentally is like decades ago it's still the same oh, yeah. thing well you think about it for a minute technology's moved on music moved on everything else right how many times have you been to somebody's wedding whatever else somebody's do recently away from rave scene and you've gone somewhere and you thought that dj shit <laughs> yeah there's nobody up dancing or they're not really making effort you know they've like queued a load of stuff on the laptop and they've trotted off and like, chat the barman or whatever they're doing or barman up if you whatever and back then you, you, you and now for that matter you, you absolutely had to be on top of your game so you were hoofing all these records around all the big setup. that's somebody's big day that's somebody's event you can't screw that up you've got to you've got to give them a good time yeah. well, you could maybe not give them a good time be an arsehole but that's an arsehole trick you've got to give them a good time so you learn this, this, I'd say this, this art, or this certainly this skill of reading that dance floor, looking for the people in that crowd. You think, right, I'm getting a response from them, so I'm going to play this. I'm going to go from that to this next track to this next track, and right, okay, there's a few more. Got all the older, the mums and stuff have got up now. Right, okay, I'll play a little bit of that. Right, I'll dip in some Motown because maybe that'll be their ear. Oh, they're not quite into that. I'll try something else from around the same time. So you're trying to look at the age and read and next guess, and but still keep a flow to it. And then, of course, you get later in the night, like any do, whatever it is, all the blokes are pissed up. They get up and start waving their arms about, yeah. you'll play, I don't know, a modern-day Oasis or you know, whatever it was back then. But that was the, the, the routine you followed, and you, there's a certain flow to it, but a certain skill to thinking, shit, if they're not having it, what next, what am I going to do now? Yeah, and essentially, this is what I'm saying, whether that's 70s, 80s, 90s, Makes no it's still the same principle as now. Yeah, and I, I do wonder whether people... Uh, sometimes is it a common sense thing or is it I think by experience because sometimes you're going to think I'm going to play this and this is going to make them dance and it bombs and I've done that I've done that in discos I've done it in, in raves as well where and then it's like where do I go from here whereas I wonder if some people are just like I'll just mix another fucking record in yeah uh, no two weeks the same right it's like you can go and do a gig you know I've done I'll not come to up in stuff later but I've done Uprising or whatever played and one week and played certain set bunch of tunes and literally a week later it's like, shit, what now? And you, you, you 
digging a little bit and it's just down to the mood of the crowd and that's the point you've got to read the crowd so yeah i don't think that's changed at all and i think that's something that forgetting technology like you say formats all that bollocks you've got to be looking and thinking what are those lot doing there fix it if they're, if they're all wandering off it leads us nicely into the next thing actually the early days of the rave scene how did you get into the rave scene and <laughs> well, well i was a little bit late to it because when it was kicking off so when it was all kicking off um, late 80s to early 90s, I was listening to Acid House, I was buying some of the stuff, but it kind of went a bit piano-y. So me being more into, a little bit more industrially sounding stuff, I found myself liking Progressive House more. So I was buying that, that, kind, of, that kind of stuff. Um, I was still buying you know, maybe some of the, the more sort of piano-y uplifting, but it wasn't really my thing. And I got other stuff going on as well. I mean, I, I was... Uh, Let's just say having my ups and downs in life of uh, three things that got me into trouble, which were buying and selling, fighting, and driving cars like a bell end. Okay. <laughs> so, and a couple okay. of driving holidays and things. So, yeah. that kind of scuppered stuff. And, oh, yeah, it's just stupidity. Um, but I was still buying that music. And then, after an epiphany I had, where, uh, let's just say, an instant just maybe stop being a dick. Went to Donny Warehouse, or was it Vibe Light first? It was 93, and it was just like, wow, this is so different to what I was expecting. And, I mean, we talked about Graham earlier passing away and the tributes to him. Yeah, fair play to the guy who let, just let Mick loose and, and mixed creativity and, and, and bringing in different artists. So there I am, and I'm hearing breakbeat, I'm hearing more piano stuff, I'm hearing you know, tip, borderline jungle, I'm hearing... You know, um, proper kind of hardcore techno was you know borderline gabba, um, as well as you know the the Belgian stuff and, and trance and this this mishmash. It's like, wow! So that was like the epiphany for me musically. And I went from messing around doing the house stuff, and I've been playing like Norma Jean's in um, Chesterfield and sort of more clubby pubs by then. I kind of moved up the ranks. That was it. It was like a switch was flicked. I want to do this. I see there's a video, it's quite a famous video that you'll have seen it circulating. I think Mick Emzone did with a personal filmed it from Doncaster Warehouse. And it's where the guys are gurning like these extra <laughs> terrestrial gurns. You know, I've never seen anything like it. That one, my, my main takeaway from that video was the energy oh, yeah. of, that, of that time period. It's kind of like, I've said it to some of my mates who are more into music now and got into DJing and weren't like the way you were born then. Yeah. And I'm like, just look listen to that and some of the things what stood out I wanted to bring it and play it tonight just so we could run through it but people were there were none of this no one was stood facing DJ and MC everyone oh, was yeah. just facing different directions the energy the ex you could feel the and I think obviously granted it was a new and exciting thing and obviously drugs fundamentally were a lot different then yeah. but I can imagine and I know from going to Uprising for the first time as a kid in mid 90s but then later on the excitement and the energy I felt there particularly at Delphi but some of these places I guess when you first walk into them and you because no one's ever been to anywhere like it before how did it feel to just nuts um it, it was and you're right you know let's, let's not be childish or anything you know you you went and you got off your pickle you dulled yourself pretty much most people did um it's funny because way back when you you even the early days of going back into work and you, you didn't feel like you could speak about it because it's like taboo, you can't talk about it. Now, yeah, I went and got mashed up last week and yeah, who cares, whatever. It's, yeah. like, it's, like, it's like, so what? But yeah, there was obviously that influence 
uh, or that, that had a major influence. But I think it's because it was so, still so new. Even when I was, as I say, late comer to it, like 93, and we'd had the criminal justice bill where they'd stamped out all the, the you know, made it illegal to have raves outdoors and stuff. So they forced it into the clubs and trying to um, gentrify it, if you want to call yeah. it that. Um, but there was still a massive energy. I mean, this was just before the kind of the splitting of kind of jungle from the rave scene, and you still got a real groundswell of like it was just full on. It was a melting pot of different sounds. Um, so you know, good good drugs, I guess, a good mishmash of sounds and completely open-minded kind of attitudes towards music and towards people as well. Mm. You, just, you just didn't care, and there was still that newness about it. Because it was only a few years old. Yeah, it was a pretty special time, and. and People always say, oh, the best times were, were those times because it's kind of when you were young. But I, I think even taking that, those, that misty-eyed kind of, this was my era away, I think you can look at the, those eras and look at the, the, the spread of music and the, the diversity and it's hard to argue against it. And I would say probably some people would say that was the case even in the early 90s before the yeah. uh, moving in, into clubs. But, as a, as a rave fan and someone who was like studied it and looked at all the different events and the different eras and all that, I, sometimes I wish I were born a bit earlier, <laughs> but I would say, categorically say that that era, the early 90s, and then moving on like to the mid and later 90s for Uprising in particular, I, I don't like when people say like back in the day and then it's shit after that, but I, I, you've got to be honest and look at the energy and the way the events went and all that. And it, Things, we're going to come into it, things do remodel and change and gladly a lot of them are still around now, but that was the, the period of time, the, the, the key yeah. period of time. I'd, I'd say so. There was loads of stuff going on. I mean, it was all over, up and down the country. And you know, people now talk about, oh, new talent will get through and stuff like that. But the, because there was a lot more going on, there was a lot more scope for more people to get a break or find a break, or in my case, create their own break. And, and so I think it was just... It was healthy. And the other side, the, the other thing that had a, a big uh, part to play in that, I think, and you don't have this now, obviously, for obvious reasons, is the record shop culture. Yeah. It, they were almost symbiotic in that you wanted to know what was going on, and it was the record shops, and, and the pirate radio stations as well, for that matter. That, was, that, that had a massive part in it. Obviously, we had SCR and stuff like that in Sheffield. But the record shops were where you went. You went on a Saturday or early in the week if you were, if you could and you'd get like the new tunes before everybody else got them and they might get the white labels and oh so and so's playing this easy these playing this or so and the memzone's playing that or whatever else you'd be like oh, I want to get that before somebody else that's the last one you might not like it that much but you buy it anyway because it was like that I've got to have it kind of yeah, thing yeah. and then there was all the yeah, we up back now they were they were dreadful I suppose really they weren't very imaginative but all of the merchandise kind of clothes you just jack it with a logo on I mean so what, but... Well, how exciting, like, I, yeah. I, I, I was a teenager at this point, and I, I remember the excitement about the racing as a whole amongst, like, the lads who were, like, three, four, because everyone were going at, like, 15, 16, and, you know, but the cap, all the caps and the uh, the coats, so the rising coats, the destruction, the viable, like, dreamscape, <laughs> and you look at them now and you think it's just a coat, but back then they were, like, yeah. on, honestly, I, I, I can remember my mum bought me a, a destruction coat, and I thought traitor. it was the best thing in the world, yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding, by the way, I'm kidding, so he's not a traitor. Shall I ask you? <laughs> yeah, I used to. Thank you, just someone who was doing all that. <laughs> Couldn't afford uprising prices, by the way. Oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, again, that leads us nicely into our next one. Um, revolution, uprising, the, the early days. 
And I, and yeah. I know someone's shout out to uh, Carlos Lee, Winnie P as well. Uh, sent me a, a big timeline of what, what he remembers <laughs> uprising from over the venue changes and the years and all yeah. that. But I'd like to take it back to how it all came about, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and just, just on that, those lads, I mean, those tape collectors, man, they're just like... Well, I knew, I knew I'm like, I need to work <laughs> so, out roughly... And I had a rough idea, but where Uprising was and went over years, and I'm like, oh no, and I'm like, Winnie will know because of it. <laughs> then it, that's it. So a whole new topic of conversation. But how fanatical them lot are about the tapes and the the years and the different MCs and the DJs and all that. It's like its own little train yeah, spotter type. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I like that because I mean any proper DJs at geek at heart anyway, yeah. like a proper record geek. So anybody who's a tape geek and therefore by default a record geek, they're all right with me. So. Yeah, so how did it all start? So, so basically, um, so I've been doing the, the pubs and clubs, to go back a little bit. Um, I'd been working for this guy when I was doing all the pubs. Uh, he had a company, he had a thing called Galaxy Disco, and I'd gone and covered for my pal in, um, in Chesterfield at a, uh, oh, a place called Spire, Spires. And um, he got wind of it and saw his arse. And so he sacked me. So I was working five nights a week doing all these places. So I'm like, oh, shit, now what? So I got the uh, the gig at Norma Jeans. So the guy who um, ran Spires, Jerry, um, who still makes me on Facebook, you see him popping up now and again. He's a, he's a Wednesday fan as well. Hi, mate. Oh, Jerry. <laughs> um, Hang in there, Jerry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he got Norma Jeans, this other place. And it was a nondescript pub. So we said, oh, you can come and do this. So it was a bit, took a bit of time coming. So I was doing that. So Thursday and Friday, I'm doing Norma's. The other guy, Butch, who I mentioned, who's not around anymore, bless him, rest in, rest in peace, Butch. Um, he had a disco firm, and him and Keith were at Loggerheads, so the minute I come on the market as a DJ, you know, I was reasonable at it. He was like, right, I'll give you work. So I got cross keys on a Saturday, so straight away I got all my work laid out. And approached the revolution that had gone through different chains of ownership, so it was Peppermint Park back in my day, I mean, this is how far I go back, as I mentioned. Then it was Club Pasha when they had all the enchantments and all the big raves on a Monday night. So I was like a bit indifferent to that because I was too busy bellending around. And then this other lot came along and Kenny had stayed there as manager after you know, Pasha stopped and it became a revolution. And we'd approached them because by then I was like getting a bit of momentum at Norma Jeans as me, Danny, Double L, Craig, Unity, our kid, were all like jumped in the car and we're doing our little, you know, dog and pony show down at Norma Jeans on a Thursday to about like, 50 people, you know, sharing 50 quid between us and petrol in the car and all that shit. So I've been doing that and I went and approached uh, the owners of the club and Ken was a bit indifferent to it. He's like, yeah, whatever. And they said, okay, can I have a Monday night? So in 1994, January 1994, uh, first night, printed a black and white flyers, what's your poison? You're like proper like budget <laughs> shit, man. I mean, saying that, the tape comes with budget shit, but that's not the story. The proper budget shit, and I got like asked around a few people to play and stuff like that. And first night, there's things about 150 people there, there's nothing, you know. And so we did another one in February and then did uh, one on May Day and then eventually kind of said like, yeah, no, no, you're not doing it. And Mick Emzone had been involved and helped me get going. So that was the end of that. Then we did August, uh, because they sacked us off, we did August at a place called Shipmates in Rotherham, which is another club that people sometimes get misty-eyed about. And here's, here's an interesting story. We had Tony DeVete came and played okay. for us. Yeah, Tony DeVete okay. came and played hardcore. Right. In August, in Rotherham, 
uh, yeah, what was the, we call it, what's your poison? Yeah, um, yeah. And that was just like maddest thing ever and we're emceeing and stuff. And again, we've got about 150 people, so it's kind of not doing much. So that was that. So I'm still doing my gigs, doing my normal jeans and stuff. And I got quite matey with Kenny by then. I think he'd gone from being a bit like indifferent to it to, you know, he's, he, yeah, he seems all right. And we, we got quite pally. So he, he approached me, he said, uh, he came to me in October 94 and he says, Thursday nights have, uh, have gone up the wazoo. Um, they used to do this like pound entry or 10 pound entry, whatever, pound a pint type night for students. So they're just getting all, all underages and everything else. Coppers were on their bikes. They, they put a stop to it. It's like, stop doing this, you're going to lose your license. So we've got an empty club with we, nothing he could do with it. He said, and we've been getting a little hour slot, a little half hour slot in the rev. They give us a little yeah, yeah. now and again because we've got another DJ stuff. Okay, then come and do something. So there's me at the time in October 94. This is uprising nearly happening, thinking, yeah, but I've got to get a lot of flyers on these to do it properly. I've got to get some colour flyers and I've got to do them for a month to make it last. And so I did my maths and thought, I'm going to have to stick a thousand quid on my visa because I ain't got enough money to pay for it. And I nearly didn't do it because I'm like, yeah, but it's 50 quid a night. And, you know, even though I'm only going to get like 15 quid myself, we've divided it all up and stuff. So this is how, like, <laughs> my head was at. It was like, it was, it was the, the, the massive rave that nearly never happened. And I just thought, fuck it, just go for it, you know. Yeah. Um, so I gave up my night on the Thursday. We kicked it off. The launch was um, 12th of January 1995. I'll never forget that date. And the first night, we got 320 people in on a Thursday night in Rotherham. It's like... Holy shit. I, I, sorry to interrupt. <laughs> I just want you to think about like, if you're listening. It, it, obviously, I'm, cause I'm quite, I'm 40 this year, so I, I do remember it. Like, I weren't there, but I were a kid then. But 300 and odd people on a Thursday night, like, people are doing well to pull that on a, on a Saturday, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. And it, I, well, I know you did, you did all sorts of nice things, but that just blows my mind, the fact that A, raves were on on a Thursday night, and B, that that, that many people were wanting to... Rock yeah. up. And the mad thing was, is that I remember going to Donny Warehouse on New Year's Eve 94 and Stu Allen, rest in peace, Stu, was, was playing <laughs> was playing there and we're talking about earlier on about the warehouse being packed and the place was fucking hammered, man. Yeah. Like, literally, you weren't dancing because you were just getting moved around yeah, by the... Yeah. It was that busy. Yeah. I have never, ever, ever been in anywhere as busy as that where you literally couldn't... You couldn't yeah, have a little yeah. stomp. You were literally just getting swayed around. Yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, God, I wonder if I ever get to play here and stuff like that. And, you know, thinking, I wonder if Horizon will take off. And then literally, a fortnight, less than a fortnight later, we open the doors and this thing just goes gangbusters. It's like, not packed, but pretty fucking busy. And we're like, whoa. And obviously I'd be going at warehouse and stuff and trying to put myself about a little bit and, you know, talking to people. So obviously we've got a few heads from Donny. Obviously came out of curiosity because we had Mickey M zone on. We've got some of the Sheffield heads because we had Dream on and we had Natty MC in for us. There's like our kid and Danny and um, and Craig, which I think who else we had on as well as another MC. But it basically, we kind of it was a little bit homegrown with a few like the bigger names, and it just obviously just just got the formula right, and people loved it. And then the next week, there's about the same, maybe a few more, about three and a half hundred people in, and like might be on something here. And the next week after that, and, and well, the rest is history. It just it just went. Was that the moment when you things just yeah, but I think that because it was all a bit surreal and I was still working full time at the time, I kind of, I probably took it for granted a little bit, not in, a, in a, an arrogant way, but just it was a bit like indifferent, a bit almost like bemused by it. It's like, oh, fucking hell, it's busy. Well, great. 
let's go, let's get parting it off an appers kind of thing. We're still like in that kind of like very much a raver mode, even though with a bit of, I was a bit of a business head, but a bit of an idea of what you're going to do with it. Still having a night out and enjoying yourself. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know, uh, and it went from strength to strength, and and then there's several things that really made me click and think. Right, you know, it stepped up. I say the professionalism. The, well, I suppose it was. We booked Ferguson. Gary Vibelite came along. Cheers, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of time for Gary. Gary's a top bloke. And he, he said, oh, you know, how, how are we doing this? Oh, well, we're doing okay. We're making money. And of course, then naively, we were paying the door staff and the cost and then splitting the door profits because I was naive. So I told him, I said, yeah, making a couple of hundred quid, 250 quid sometimes. He was like, wow, we're making money. He said, we don't make any money on the vibe license. Okay. And bear in mind, I've been there a lot. So like massive influence yeah, for yeah. me, along with obviously warehouse and destruction. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? He says, it's the merchandise, you know, the tapes and the things. So I'm like, okay then. So I thought, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll try and get some tapes. So yellow pages, you know, hi kids. <laughs> <laughs> no Google then. Yellow pages, tape duplication. Oh, there we go, tape duplication. This, this fella called Lee instead. Oh, okay. How much to get tape? Oh, you've got to have blocks of 50, something like that. And watch the, oh, well, because smaller batches are more expensive doing the math, so it's going to cost me 100 quid, something like that. Okay, I don't want to risk 100 quid. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> well, what else do I need? To, oh, you need stickers. As, oh, oh, yes, I need stickers on the inlays. Right, I can sell you those. Right, okay. And... Covers. So back to the tape collectors. Hi, lads. <laughs> I went through this the other day. Because at work, I got access to all the desktop publishing stuff because I was doing the IT stuff down at what was the Millside Centre. My boss used to have me do the designs for printing and events and stuff we were doing. So he basically let me use the printer, bless him. And um, they had coloured paper because I couldn't afford to get colours, proper colour tape covers done. So I thought, right, well, I'll do pink this week. I'll do like mint green next. Okay, yeah. And it just this black and white thing. And then I get them and get them in the guillotine and stuff. So, yeah. And then fold them. And, 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 and so it's proper like homegrown. Black like, street. Yeah, man. And, <laughs> um, so I did the first 50 and then like, you know, obviously I knew where the shops were, like Rhythm Nation and places like that. So and it was sale and return. So you basically you took the tapes, you left them with them, they signed a piece of paper and you went back the next week and if they got 10 left and you'd left them 20, they'd pay you for 10 tapes and that's how it works. So there's no risk to the shop. And these things were selling to like, all right, I might step it up, I might have a few more done then. I might do more than one guest. So I stepped it up and stepped it up. And within about a month or so, we were like doing three, three and a half hundred tapes. And it's like, wow, this this thing is. It's like, and then I started thinking about the other merchandise. So the, the, the reason for saying that was not just that, that epiphany, but they were also advertising. So as well as you got the flyers, as well as I'm always around the yeah. raves and talking about it, Every one of those tapes was promo for the event. So it just spiralled. My next point, and I, I, I tried to think of how to word this. I put, Uprising, when did you know you had created a cultural monster? And that might sound a bit far-fetched, but what I wanted to explain a little bit about, when I was younger, and I was like, I think I was like 12, something like that, and all my older mates were completely obsessed with Uprising. And it, they had, the, they had the coats, the caps, they had the tapes. Mm-hmm. I got into rave music because my brother was playing and you ended up giving me an original copy of the tape, didn't you, a few years yeah, ago? Yeah, yeah. Stu Allen Christmas Party Uprising tape and my brother and his friends were babysitting for me and some of my younger mates and they were playing it all night and they were doing our fucking head in. Because <laughs> it was upstairs and you could just hear bang, bang, bang and then obviously someone... Like rapping, what we thought were rapping over it. <laughs> fuck me. So me and my mate nicked it, <laughs> nicked the tape, yeah. like, fuck this. We ended up putting it in, 
it's all right. <laughs> Start getting into it. But I, I feel like the excitement, and why I said cultural monster, because I want to try to capture the excitement. And I, obviously, you saw it from your perspective because you created it. But for me, like the excitement amongst people that were going out to them nights out and listening to the tapes and all that, it were kind of like a massive part of life, like a cultural thing. I remember some of the things that my mates were saying, like someone, if they, they were all on dole, <laughs> they'd like, whoever got, because you used to your events every week, didn't you, at one point, which is another point of discussion which blows my mind. But <laughs> whoever got the dole one week paid paid for to go to rave and then whoever got it the week yeah. after. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's something as simple as that. It's kind of like, they, they wanted to be there, they needed to be there, and he had a, I guess in life you're looking for things, for outlets, aren't you, and ways to, to let your hair down and stuff like that, but I remember Uprising in particular, just a massive, and then I remember like stuff like the fair coming to Kivo, and they were playing the happy hardcore in, in <laughs> like 95 and 96, and everyone was just, yeah, special, it must have been special to be involved with it, to run it all as well, like. It, it was, but you know, even now it's surreal, John, right, because people say that, and, I really, I won't say take it for granted, but I kind of, I'm still in my head, I'm still that kid tazzing around Thriver Pit Top on, <laughs> on his motocross and then thinking one day I ought to sell it and buy some decks and stop fucking about and have a proper go at this. So it kind of, you know, my head's still kind of there a little bit. And you do get carried away with it to a degree, but not, I don't think, not to the extent that you really appreciate, to use your words, it was a cultural monster. Um, we knew it was kind of going somewhere, but you were in the thick of it and I think we were that busy being excited by everything going on around us as well as the thing we were doing that we just felt a part of it in the same way we, we tried to make people feel a part of it because we were just like everybody else. You know, so we do Uprising on the Thursday. We'd go down to um, Destruction or up to Destruction rather or down to maybe Diard or across Kinetic or whatever else and then end up at Diard later on and then come back and then be out on the tape run on the Saturday and then get back and be knackered because you're like no sleep and, and, and you're strung out and it's like you watch telly be like a blind date or some shit come and be like <laughs> oh wow <laughs> Kenny we're going out what should we do ah fuck let's go so and so and the next thing you're, you're doing whatever and then you end up in the warehouse and then you're tipping out the warehouse and going to somebody's for a smoke afterwards and then you're, you're getting back and trying to get yourself some dinner and sort your head out and then it's like oh fuck it let's go over to Cudder for something and that, that was that was how you live so it was just like non-stop every week and I think you caught up on your sleep sort of Tuesday, Wednesday night because we went to Zone in Rodman <laughs> on a Monday on a pound of bottle night and got absolutely mullered there because Ian Wally, bless his soul, rest in peace and, and Roger, again, rest in peace and the other lads, they were all down there on the doors as well as coming out with us so it just yeah. you were just in this kind of big melee of just like just not craziness as in a bad way just craziness, just, just, just having an absolute riot and because of those people that were around us we probably didn't fully appreciate what we were creating and, and, and obviously now what it's become because we were just in the middle of it, just having a laugh. And the cultural monster sounds like a, quite a grand term, but what I'm saying is you moved to different venues, you, you, you went to different places and the crowds of people, whatever night of week, were flocked to it. This is what I mean. It's, yeah. not, just, it's not just an average yeah. night, is it? It's... I, th I think some of that was because again, back to being like working class lads um, and sort of sticking two fingers with the system. You know, I had my plenty of run-ins with the old Bill, as I alluded to earlier. Um, poor dad, bless him, and my mum for that matter, bless her soul. She, uh, <laughs> Rob, my advertiser, come out, and you've, we've all seen it, right, the court report. 
great many people call Lo Sullivan in Rotherham, you know what I mean? And there's only two families in Thrive that would also be grandparents. So when that's listed, it's like, then I get back from work, oh, fuck hell's been going on here then. So like, you know, lots and lots of bother. And that kind of carried with me, that, that stick two fingers up. So we were at the, the point I'm getting to is, we're at Revolution, we're really flying, come to July time, a uh, week before my birthday, and the old bill shut the place down. Now, part of that was because the club owners, as we discovered, were not paying the rent and stuff. They were running it down. They were being a bit shady. Me and Kenny made some inquiries because we were getting quite mated and, oh, could we take on the lease and stuff? They found out they fired him. So we were fired, I think it was end of June uh, time. So, and it was just chaos then because this guy was running the club. was like The guy was the DJ. He was, was a bit of a joey, really. Uh, but he, it was just turned to a shit fest. And the old bill come and busted it. And that's it, no more raves here. So we, we, we put our feelers out and we found the Tivoli. Uh, <sighs> that was Tivoli, which is the old Millmore ground. So we, we get them to agree to do it, get a sound system in there, all sorted, put a party on Stu Allen again. Brilliant night. Everybody loves it. Next day, I get a phone call from um, owner of the light apartment, manager, whatever, Tivoli, you know, you're not coming back here next week. That's it, done. Turns out they'd had the licensing coppers who had shut down the revolution, obviously took exception to raves, been around and said to them, where's the effect of, you put a rave on here, your license is at risk, so they're like, done. So like, now what? RMBC licensing, I've had me no, on No, there. it's police licensing, oh, police so, so it's okay. the, the liquor license from the coppers, oh, not right, the yeah, uh, yeah. PNL, uh, not PNL, whatever it's called. Um, uh, anyway, so, so that's happening, so it's like, now what? Oh, fuck this is not stopping us. So then <laughs> next thing, Natty said, he was living in there with a girl in Redford at the time. She's like, might be a club in Redford up for grabs Porterhouse. So he goes over, meets a two-storey, well, three-storey building, but two dance floors and all the rest of it. Cracking little venue. I heard it was a good venue. Yeah. Brilliant venue. Yeah. But obviously the concern was like, are people going to travel? Well, it's probably the same for the Donny a lot. Uh, so what we did was we, um, the lads from Barnsley in the record shop in Barnsley knew of a, a coach firm that would do coaches pretty cheap and they weren't too upset about, you know, if folk, folk were having a smoke on the coach and stuff, it was just like it was a bit of a bit of a Wild West thing. So we put the coaches on, I think we charged some daft like three quid return, we do stop-offs on the way, so they'd stop off at Maltby and Wickersley and all the rest of it. So people who lived on route were like happy days. Like, I bet they were some coach parties, weren't they? <laughs> So off went the, the fun buses off to, um, <laughs> on the away day to Redford. And uh, they'd rock up and we'd go in. And, and of course, then we would start pulling crowds from Redford itself, from Ollerton. So yeah. we, were, we were grabbing some spreading, of the East Coast crowd. Yeah, yeah. And of course, with the tapes and stuff, and we were spreading the, the, the networks. I mean, we were up to like 30 odd shops with the tapes and stuff at one point, you know, all over the north of England and dipping down as far as Leicester. So now you know, we're getting a bigger crowd in there. So it, it got that momentum. And I think. We really spiked. I mean, I'll go back to Revolution for a while because the biggest night we had in Revolution was 700-odd people in April 95 when first time I booked Stu Allen. And I booked him um, then. And I'd always promised I'll try and get Stu Allen for June if we could get enough people coming in and stuff because it was like, expensive and the risk. So like, I'll, I'll maybe do it. And we had him. We packed the place out. I mean, it was way past what the fire limits. I mean, <laughs> you know, there shouldn't have been that many people in there. But what a night. The night was electric. And I can remember playing after him and literally like, my hands are shaking like that. The noise. I can, I can hear it now, the noise of the crowd. It's like, like fucking hell. I think that's when I first realised we're onto something. Yeah. But then when I really started to realise, back to the moving around, was, was Retford. And 
we, um, we were getting more and more people. We've got Danny Jester coming and playing by then, uh, rest in peace, Dan, and, and a load of bunch of other people. So we were mixing the music up a little bit. We'd have the jailhouse lot. We were across the road from Rhythm Nation at Donny. They were doing a jungle set. So we'd, we'd try and sort of appeal to a wider crowd. And Christmas party, we put on a pretty big lineup, to be fair. I think Stew, there's vibes, there's a big old lineup spread across the two rooms, packed everywhere. So it was a brilliant Thursday night. And by this time, what we were doing, we were getting tapes on a Thursday, whizzing them back, pushing through the letterbox of the guy who did the duplication. He'd do the duplication all Friday. Kenny would then go and pick them up, meal while on a Friday. I would be doing all the covers and stickers at work, getting all guillotined up. We'd meet up at Kenny's mum and dad's on a Friday evening. They'd box and stick them all up ready. We'd go <laughs> off and do our gigs and stuff. Come back. Saturday morning, you're going to hear the tape with your shout-out from the previous Thursday. And that was the bit I got onto as well that I realised if I can get those turned around quick, people are going to be like, fresh in their mind, that's catching my Saturday that's morning. That's your psychological sales Yeah, 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 I yeah, need yeah. to learn some of this shit. So, so we were doing that. And, and the reason I mentioned Porthouse and stop on, on this little, little anecdote is that we, we went and distributed all the tapes and stuff. And Rhythm Nation was a brilliant shop for us. I mean, it was... I used to spend 60 quid a week in their records myself because it was just, it was fantastic. It was a, probably the best shop in the North of England, in my opinion. Yeah. The lads were fantastic. I got a phone call. I'd been like, I dropped off there and I'd gone out East Coast, so uh, Newark and all that kind of stuff, Lincoln. And, and, and Ian's like, um, Ian or Owen, whoever it was, said, we've run out of tapes. What do you mean? We've run out of Stuart tapes. I'm like, but I left you about 150. He says, I know, we've, we've run out. So I rings Kenny up. Kenny, can you get some more tapes? And yeah, Ian can... Can you pick them up right? Okay, I'll go home and print off on my... Then, by then, I've got a laser jet printer so I can do ad hoc stickers, <laughs> your short runs. So I'm printing off more fucking stickers for the, for the cassettes. Yeah, yeah. More covers as well. Home guillotine, cutting them up and all this shit. <laughs> Meets up with Kenny, gets them. I'm back at Rhythm Nation, whatever time it was, half three, four, something like that. Literally, as fast as I'm stickering up a tray of tapes, I'm taking, Ian's coming up for him, he's taking them, he's coming back and they're selling. In one weekend... One weekend in one shop at Christmas Night Five, we sold 300 tapes. That's insane. I know, and, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm saying that f- because it's insane. It's like you can't even comprehend it now because <laughs> everybody just went nuts. And that is when I realised we're on to, we, 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 we are, we're established. This now. is what I mean about if people are like banging the doors down at shops like, give us these tapes, that's a demand. We like see it with all this prime drinking stuff now, like the same. Thing, but it's like for them, it's like I need this tape. Yeah. I've been there. It was cold. That it was cool. cool. I've had someone, I've had MC Natsen said shout out to Joe Bloggs, and I need to hear that tape. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was the cult of uprising. That's yeah. when I realised that we'd really tapped into it. I think because you know, it was a lot of our crowd of working class, and, and, and I'm proud of that. You know, it, I think there was a real affinity there. And because we'd had the like, you know, fuck the police, you know, stopping us partying, our attitude was like, yeah, we're, we're going to put a rave on. And people bought into that. So it was that rebellious, and, and the, the original name of Uprising and it being about rebellion and stuff like that, it just, it just fit the brand so well. So it just, they probably helped us if truth be told. It was very, yeah, thanks, coppers. Because <laughs> yeah. in the long run, they did us a favour. And maybe if they hadn't, who knows, we might not be here. So... A couple of things on that. The skull and crossbones. <laughs> uh, Blatant rip-off. So whoever did the bastard bunny, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> I just saw that in Mixed Mag. I thought, that's quite cool. I'll stick some crossbones on it. I'll put it on the medicine bottle for what's your poison. 
And then on May Day, I just did this shitty Photoshop thing with the, the skull and crossbones with like crappy drawn or coral draw or something with parachutes on. I mean, it was proper like low rent stuff. But then it, it, because people had got familiar with that, like skull and crossbones. Iconic, like this is what I'm saying, like <laughs> yeah. the tapes, still to this day, it's iconic, that image. I know. Simple. Yeah, I think these days how like grand and how much extent people go to to design things and all the colours and all that, and that's literally just I know. you knocking him up, getting <laughs> <laughs> yeah. his mum and dad filling tapes in. And yeah, I know, I know. Mad. I know, and that's that's where it come from, nothing more. So it was the, the bastard bunny, I, I don't know it was, weather or something. I just put crossbones on it, stuck it on the medicine bottle for the poison thing, which itself wound the coppers up apparently. Um, and then just stuck with it just to keep winding them up. That's <laughs> so it, yeah, fuck you, coffer. <laughs> so we did Porterhouse, Retford? Yeah, we did Porterhouse, Retford. Um, and then the, the official story was the police were giving her a hard time. But then, rather strangely, about a week after, the night that she'd been doing herself, um, was, was still running, which was Adidas. And I'm not knocking the guys who were behind that one name. It was obviously her. But um, my read of that is she obviously thought she could just push us out because we were just paying a few hundred quid rent to rent the club and putting the sound in and we were packing it so she must have thought she can emulate it and as we all know it's not that easy just putting an event on right you know build it and they will come it doesn't work like that <laughs> so um so yeah so we were homeless and we talked to a couple of places and because uh, kenny had played sugar cubes because mick had been involved um the guys at sugar cube said you can come along here and it kind of gave us a, a I guess I say stepping stone, that sounds pretty rude, I don't mean it like that, but it kind of gave us a, a lease of life, so to speak. And by this time I packed my job in, so I was working up until January 96, and I thought, right, that's it now. And that's when I realised I'd done after the the Island thing, I thought, I can, day job, working for the council, rockstar lifestyle, see ya. <laughs> so that was me done, and then two months later we'd lost uh, Porterhouse, and I'm like, shit, now what? So um, we got um, Lincoln, it was a little bit too far, I think, for a lot of the crowds. Nothing wrong with the venue or anything, but just I think it was just a little bit too far. We ended up putting one coach on, and the numbers were really... We were struggling to get the numbers in. We were nothing like we were. You know, the, the five and six hundreds regular at the Porterhouse, we weren't seeing those. And, you know, we started to wonder, you know, is this it, kind of thing. And, and we'd had a month off as well, where I'd just been burning some of my savings and just thought, you know, Christ, now what, you know. And then we got wind, or I think Kenny heard about it through somebody that, you know, there's this place called the Adelphi coming up. So we, 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 we struggled on with Lincoln, we went and looked at the Adelphi, looked fantastic, we all know what the Adelphi is, right? Um, and we managed to get um, them to agree a, a deal again, we were splitting half the door. So all you people who think I made millions out of uprising, we were naive. <laughs> we, we weren't really businessmen. Yeah, the deal is we split the door take and then you pay your event. Oh, okay, yeah. We were just that desperate to get get a, a venue. Well, at this stage, you're still kind of in a party. Is it still? Are you still partying a bit and having a night out? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah, yeah. yeah. I was still gigging as well. I mean, yeah. in tandem with this, so I'm obviously getting gigs left, right, and centre because you know there's this 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 curiosity that is this Thursday night that's packed out and all the main DJs are playing it. Like, holy shit, what is this thing that's we're going to on a Thursday that's just fucking mental? Um, I played Pleasure on New Year's Eve. I mean, that was like some gig. That ten thousand people there it was bonkers. You know, I'm playing the Clown's Mouth to a couple of thousand, three thousand, whatever people it was in there, packed out, just thinking this is nuts. And then playing the New Year in it, Donny Warehouse, the place I've been a year before, thinking, wonderful when it's play here. Yes, yeah, so it was all kind of crazy and a bit nuts. Um, and back to the Adelphia, we sort of 
luckily, because we were back in Sheffield, and there's obviously a crowd there who was still the hangover from, I guess, when, when uh, Dream was doing his, his events and, you know, obviously events that went before it. And because it was easy to access, you know, train station, there was the tram near the club. Yeah. I think all of those things helped. And the fact the venue was, was just fantastic as well. It was iconic. So we kicked that off um, June 96, if memory serves. And it was our kid's birthday. I put a picture of him as a kid on a flyer as well. He hated me for that. <laughs> Shit out his trick. That, that became a theme as well. Let's get a picture of someone. Let's put them on the flyer to just have some banter. But, you know, again, Big Stew come along. Packed out. I think it was 700 people in there. The club owners were just like, they were blown away because yeah. like Thursday night, they were doing this other stuff on weekends that never really come off. And they were back on the map. And the rest is history. Well, I say the rest is history. Again, the rest is history. It was the next era. It was the next massive leap forward and um yeah people just just took to it and and we firmly became established as the sheffield the big rave in the north of england yeah we've got to talk about adelphi um you know because we've had so many chats um that place to me it if you didn't go it's all and i guess you know it's probably the same as a lot of the like the warehouse had a massive sentimental feel to people from the area before Mm. Hmm? I first went to Uprising Teens in, which we're going to come on to in a minute, it's a sort of subject, <laughs> in 96, yeah. and I was 12. Um, it was, we'd, we'd got into the tapes and all that, and we were excited, and obviously we knew the older people that went to the, uh, the Over-18s events, and then we saw some flyers in, what was the little shop in Rotherham? Oh, um, Andy had um, fifth. Element was it or something? Fifth, oh, found, no, fifth, no, no, fifth dimension. Fifth dimension, yeah. Little narrow. Yeah, yeah. And we, we were in, in Rotherham where our mates, I think, would been like touring folks swimming baths or something. Yeah. We walked in and saw uprising teens. Like, fucking hell. <laughs> I'm good at this. And we went. And obviously, the teens event was a lot different to the, to the main event. But even to just walk into that venue, well, then to go back then as an adult, well, nearly an adult. Um, sorry, I, I skipped past the part where you. Yeah, come on, let's have it. You sk- I skipped past the part where me and my mate as 12 year olds went and Paul. So tell um, me about this. Yeah, Paul <laughs> said on the door, I'm old here, and we were like, 12 is like, you need to be 13 to come in. We were like, we've come away from Kivit and we've been dropped off. Please, can you let us in? Eventually, you did let us in. We're not such a shit house then. No, it was unconvincing. But yeah, as a time for a beer, John, I oh, think. Actually, oh, yeah. Yeah. You have the alcohol free, I'll have my uh United. Cheers for that, Paul. Yeah, you're welcome, not, yeah. Not for that though. Yeah. <laughs> I think we'd be better off with this. <laughs> ching so. ching. Um <laughs> big up the alcohol free community by the way. Yeah. Pull the blades. Lose the booze that core at UK. Fuck that. Oh, that's nice, <sighs> mate. But Adelphi. I first went I first went to Uprising at one of the other venues when I was I think I were 16 or 17 at National Centre for Popular Music. Yeah. But the first time I went to the Adelphi, it's hard to, and I really want to try and capture this for anyone who, I know I spoke to Joe Rose and Joe Rose never managed to go because he was just a bit too young. But just to try to explain about that venue and what it felt like to me firstly as a raver, and I'm so glad that I did it as a raver to begin (laughs) with, but the excitement of... A, the queue. I don't know what it was about the queue. <laughs> like, when you started walking there to DJ and you just walked straight in, it didn't have that, but in the queue. 
normally like coming up on some really strong uh, gurners or something. But <laughs> the queue's buzzing, everyone's like, yeah. there's this like anticipation, and then you yeah. can hear um, the bass of the tunes are kicking inside, but you can only hear and feel the bass, can't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. And then make your way in. And I remember uh, going through the till thing was iconic, the, like the pay desk thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then going through and weaving down side, cloakroom at left hand side. Yeah. And then one thing I found different about this venue is you walked, you walked into like almost the front of the venue. So you walked yeah, in, yeah, yeah. and if you walked in on a busy night, open them double doors, it would just bang yeah. the fucking yeah. sweat, the atmosphere, the intensity. It was like fucking hell. And I, I think. Some venues probably don't went, and obviously the night itself made it what it was, but the venue itself, and walking into it, and then the stage at the front, and the like stacked yeah. platforms at yeah. the back. I mean, you know a lot more about it than me, but I really wanted to try and capture that because for me, the, the Adelphi and Uprising, it was just like this, yeah. this yeah. connection, man, that as a raver. I mean, when I look back at different venues, I mean, the Rev was good, I thought, because it was kind of like different levels. It's a bit like a gladiator pit. I mean, when it was a, a normal normal nightclub, it was a bit of a, like a, a leer fest because all the lads are standing around the side of leering all the birds dancing. Sorry, girls, ladies, forgive me. <laughs> I, I meant birds. Look at them birds down there. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And so it was quite good for that. And the Adelphi was similar-ish in that you got the dance floor area, obviously being an old cinema, and to make it this, the, the kind of got those sort of stepped up areas towards the back of that, and you got all the bit around the side. So you, you similarly, you kind of got like the, the viewing bit there, you got the bit at the side. They didn't do the upstairs sadly because the well, it turns out they had spent seventy grand just on the steel to make the the floor load bearing to to make that useful as well. That would have been something else if they'd done that. Yeah. But even without that, we walked into that venue and saw it. You know, brand new fresh sound system in there. You know, light was okay-ish. And just you just know you're going to club as a, as, a, as a promoter. You go in certain clubs and you just look and you think, fucking hell, it's going to have it in here. Yeah. And we just knew it was going to go off. And, of course, people came and saw that venue. And, and there was a cockiness in the promotion as well to, to kind of, again, stick two fingers up to the competition a little bit. And, and I used to answer you a bit. Sorry, Stu. And it wasn't intentional to be an arse. It was just kind of like confident on the point of arrogance to say look, look this is a busy night and and let the photos like we use the photo from the first night at the Adelphi as the July flyer and I did that on purpose yeah. so what you know if you want to say how good your night is you take a picture of that night when it's absolutely swinging like you've just described you know, no amount of bullshit can can replace that image that goes... The proof is in the pudding. Fuck me, yeah. that place is packed. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and so you're right. I mean, and it was... I don't know. I think we just... We, we built that momentum as a night. And we got the right venue in the right place that people get to. And by then we'd establish ourselves, you know, as artists and all the rest of it. The residents got a bit of a following. So it was like, just boom. It just went off. And yeah, there was just something about it. There was a good vibe about it. I mean, it was lots of factors. I mean, the, the door staff, I mean, Andy Marlowe, who I still see because of the boxing and stuff with him, and the door team there, Big Scott and all those lads, proper decent lads, you know, they, they were proper tough bastards, so they didn't have to be like with all the attitude like you see with some of the modern bouncers. They were just decent lads. 
Jack and Archie were on the club. They were dead sound. I mean, Jack used to do the clubs and things like that. He'd done some bit parts of acting. So he was a proper character. He'd greet everybody. So everybody felt, it felt friendly. It felt nice. So you go in there, you're getting a nice welcome. Brilliant club. Booting sound system. You know, like I said, the Gurns were probably still good at that time. So everybody's in on a happy vibe. Yeah. So they just everything about it just worked. Yeah. And I think all of those ingredients came together to just make it iconic at the time. And I think that's when I realised... We've not just we're onto something we're established, but we're, we're there. We're, we're it's almost like everything's there. fell into place. You've done yeah. all the stuff leading up to it, and then the Adelphi, and then um, I want to come back uh, to, to stuff like about the DJs and the residents and all that. I want to cover that a little bit later. Mm. Um, so the Adelphi became uprising essentially. That was yeah. that was the place. Uh, did there were did you move on to a few years until you moved on to somewhere else. You had a quite a long run yeah, first time around it. So, so there's, it's tough owning a nightclub. Anybody says it, you know, putting nights on. I mean, we were obviously weekly, Thursday, then went Friday and then Saturday. But, you know, to make it work, you've got to be filling those buildings and getting bar spend and all the rest of it. And, and it was tough then. It's probably tougher now. And so we were Thursday. They'd been, I I think they were doing some kind of like standard disco, whatever, you know, club night. Didn't really work. And so they moved us to Friday and they got a, a little house night, you might have heard of, called Gatecrasher. Okay. <laughs> on yeah. a Saturday night. Yeah. So we're the Friday, pulling by then 800 people a week, sometimes 900, sometimes more. They're pulling about 1,100. So happy days, they're, they're laughing. Uh, and, and the thing that was the beginning of the end for the Adelphi under that ownership was Crasher, and I know this because we, we heard from the owners at the time, had made them an offer to buy out the club and, and take it on. And they didn't want to sell Jack and Archie. So they then moved into Sheffield. They got the building, which we now know is obviously what was, you know, Gate Crasher 1. Republic. Republic. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and off they went. And we moved to Saturdays, but they never found another night to backfill because... They weren't really nightclub people, so they didn't know where to go to, you know, be A and R and source other events yeah. and, and, and fill the void kind of thing. So, and that was why it dropped off, and we had to move along. But yeah, in, in, in its era, from '96 through to '98, I think it was before we moved to Chesterfield. Um, yeah, it was it was having it. Now, what was also happening in the background as well was the rave scene was really starting to crescendo into this kind of overly cheesy you know we, we'd lost the drum and bass influence um you know the everybody knocks toy town and i played it so you know apologies to anybody I've offended <laughs> but, yeah it was one of the tracks that's seen as the the, the death of the racing although some people say it was smd but whatever all i know is that you were getting the big kicks on the happy hardcore stuff now there was lots of sampling and, and lazy sampling of kind of pop records and you got the beginning of what even we still see to a degree now, which was like the, there's a click who were getting booked regularly. And if you weren't in the click, then you weren't getting booked. I saw my bookings drop off in 97. Yeah. You know, fell through, fell through the floor from, from a guy who was like playing the, the biggest clubs around the north. Um, and I think all of these things were conspiring to, to, to see the collapse that we saw in the late 90s and, yeah. and it all disappeared up his own arse. 
So it's a shame, really, that um, you know all these factors came together and, and the decline came in pretty quick. And, and there's another factor as well that came that, that, that triggered me stepping back a little bit. But I'm sure we'll come on to that in a little while. Yeah. So you went to Chesterfield, ninety-eight, I think it was. Yeah. Um, and that was um, Excel that was previously it was Pod when the Baxendales had it or something like that. And even though we'd kind of started, we tried to talk it, but you know, this is the birthplace of Uprising, the spiritual birthplace, as, as, as you know, being Norma Jeans, where I, I mean, Danny and our kids started out, and Craig, people just didn't really take to it. We still got a few hundred in, but it just wasn't the same, and it was a bit of a ball ache to go to. The Sheffield lot didn't come down to Chesterfield, and we just, we just didn't seem to make it click. Um, and other factors, things going as well, I'd come out of it a little bit. Um, I don't think Kenny had seen you know, what was really happening around him, but he was still obviously earning his living and stuff like that from it. There was dissent from some of the guys, and it was just, it was turning a bit crappy. So it was a tough time, really, 98, 99. Yeah, and I guess the whole collapse of it all and the, the massive decline in the rave scene is probably a discussion for another day, really, because there's a lot of reasons why, well, people have got different perspectives on it, haven't they? But, mm. um, so you, I'm, I'm looking back on Winnie's list here. So, XL and then back in Sheffield to Wicker Archers, was it? Yeah. Um, 99, so, is, he, is he saying here? So we, um, in 99, what actually happened was, um, me and Kenny basically fell out, went out separate ways, and I just like, because I started rising, my view was, I'm not seeing it going to turn to shit. And as kind of a gentleman's agreement, it was like, right, well, I'm, I'm not going to do uprising. I'd um, split with the eldest mum um, whenever it was in 99 Christ, September. And um, it was a case of, right, well, what are you going to do to occupy yourself? Well, um, I still want to do bits of DJing. So I decided that I'm going to put something on I'm not going to call it Uprising, I'll call it Revolution, which is the name of the club, yeah. which was cheeky, okay. but, you know, hey, what the hell. And a sound that was kind of bubbling up, they call it Transcore originally, but then it kind of became what we know as New Energy or Freeform. So you've got Kev Energy, Sharky, and that was quite exciting for me, you know, because I think the other thing that protected the scene in the north or kept it healthy was the trance influence that we didn't have in lots of other places, so where all over the country it was absolutely tanking, because of the massive trance influence, and that's thanks to Mick primarily and Mark E.G. as well to a certain degree, of course Kenny and others were playing it, but now you've got this new energy thing that kind of fit in quite nicely. There's still bits of bouncy techno being done and I was doing that and sometimes dropping the death chanty, tougher stuff. So it kind of worked, it kind of, it was like an evolution of what we've been doing at Uprising, but not so much of the happy, um, still a little bit, but not so much. And that was at the Wicker Arches. Um, and again, you know, pulling, it was monthly by then, but I was I was doing it, and yeah, about three, four hundred people, sometimes five hundred people, so healthy. Something I didn't have down on my list actually, and you've just touched on it, the music policy uprising. So it's it's more or less unthinkable now, to be honest, considering how many subgenres there is and how precise people want a specific style, don't they? And things are kind of there's a few DJs about now that are kind of throwing some different genres about, but. I remember going to Uprising, especially in the teens, mm -hmm. 
and because we were young and excitable, we were really into all like your stuff and all the like the happy hardcore and the faster stuff. And then Kenny had come on and played trance, and we'd be like, fucking hell, like, but because we didn't get the energy. But actually, at the over 18s, and we're working with some of the other kids, but the over 18s events, one thing really pointing about uprising, and I bet it must have thrown some people who came from outside, is <laughs> you'd get an happy hardcore set, so your pianos and your vocals, and you'd get Kenny playing a, 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 a mild slower trance set, but with Marcus and JD on a completely different wavelength, and, really, and then you banging some hardcore or some gabber out, and then even in its like later days, even getting bits of art style and stuff in there as well, really, you didn't turn up expecting to hear the same style or the same speed all night. You were... No, no. And that was on purpose. And that, I suppose, is a throwback to, you know, me and others being around that, the earlier rave scene and the fact there was lots of genres. I mean, that was probably an influence, if I'm, if I'm honest, from Vibalite, because that was the first place I went. You know, I got Vibalite and there was Jungle, there was Hardcore, as, as we know it, there was bouncy, you know, teaching on sort of gabba, all mishmashed under one roof. And to my mind, you know, I didn't like all the sets in that night, I'd go for a wonder or whatever else. But it still, I'd catch some of it and I'd be like, well, that's kind of all right. And I wanted to do that with Uprisings. It was absolutely intentional that not everybody's going to like everything. You know, people don't like my music, fine. You know, not offended. I don't expect everybody to like what I'm playing. And the fact that they like somebody else is more than me, happy days, good, that's what you're into. And the way I try and describe it or... If you go to the pictures and you go watch a film or whatever it is, and it's, we've all done it, we've seen action films, and it's just like full on, blah, 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 blah. You know, I took kids to Transformers and stuff over the years, and just, when the film's finished, I'm glad it's ended because it's just dumb me nothing. Because <laughs> it's just like too much. Whereas sometimes the films where it's like, there's a build, and there's the action bit, and then it drops, and then you like have to work a little bit, and then, you know, they're the ones that tend to sit with you because there's 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 a texture to it. There's, yeah. there's the, the ebbs and flows. There's the, the highs, the lows, all that kind of stuff. And I think events should be like that, and, a, and even a set within an event as well. That if it's just the same old brrr and it's full on, and there's no texture, if yeah. that's a word, then it, it's just boring. And you know, I mean, back then you you go out for a out to the smoking area or whatever else or you go and have a chill for a little bit but you'd wander in and out and you never felt like you were missing something because if there's something you went into it's just like okay I'll go and have yeah. a chill for a bit and see but what's I think you'd have generally a very knowledgeable and tolerant crowd wouldn't you where oh, God, yeah. they're, having, they're having it you might have some that are more into trans that are, are hardcore but generally across the board and as an, going back there as an adult and getting off my head there it used to be nice to have a like, I think the 8th birthday which stands out is the, the, the best that, and me and quite a lot of people on my social media agree there was something about that event, it just everything clicked into place. And I think Neophyte was on, yep. banging it out. And then you've got like Kenny and I think probably Bry playing trans stuff. And it's nice sometimes just to have him yeah. have it <laughs> have a breathe. And when you're off your head and you're dancing to pasta for that next set's like a different feeling, a different you know, like now really in events people would not like to go from 180 down to 140 or whatever but really back then there was something quite significant yeah. about it I think you've got to try and programme the night right as well and, and not have too much of a stark difference and choose when you put certain DJs and, and MCs on and I think there's an art to that and we hopefully try and get it right but yeah you're right I think 
but then you look at other big events, so you know, people watching this may or may not know it's as events like Bang Face and stuff like that, where it's an absolute mishmash of, of different styles. And yet they're very open-minded. And and that's I suppose something we always want to engender that you know, you go to a restaurant, you try something new, you try that dish, you think, oh right, okay, there's I don't know, but they see bass on the menu and you get anything. I'm not fussed for that. You can either be a prick about it and think, oh Lord of shit, and then fucking go on social media and kick off, or you can think, what's the fuss for that? I'm not, yeah, I know what I don't like now, so I'll kind of know what I like and yeah. see it as a, a bit of a discovery. And I think just if we can try and get people's heads into that way of thinking, well, just, just try it. You might like it. They might not like it on the night, but then they'll hear that somebody playing the tape, they're at the mates having a smoke, whatever else. They go, can I want fuss for this? But you know, like, like, like a lot of albums, they can be a bit of a slow burner, a bit of an yeah. earworm where it takes a while and then all of a sudden you really appreciate what that artist yeah. or that band have done. You're like, can I get it now? Yeah. And I think trance was like that for a lot of yeah. people. I think a lot of people were more into, a lot of people I know were into the stuff I was playing, and they're much more into what Kenny or Mick were playing. Absolutely fine. Yeah, yeah. I'm cool with that. So we've covered most at venues, and I don't want to go into loads of depth about it all, but like Danny here, it says you went back to Adelphi, Wicker Archers, National Centre for Popular Music, yep. which I think. Yeah, 2002, and then, that. Yeah, and then. Uh, what was the one? The first one I went to was in the big one on corner, uh, the reunion event. Nelson Mandel. Nelson yeah, Mandel yeah, was, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that we was did my that. first ever over 18s. Well, that was, that was when we were kind of like resuming diplomatic relations, Kenny and me and stuff. And um, so we were like, let's, let's, let's do something there. Let's have like a reunion thing. And then we decided we were going to do Uprising and, and the rest is history. But yeah, we did that as a as kind of reunion thing. Um, that was a mad little venue. But um, that was just a one-off. They weren't, it wasn't something we could do regularly. We managed to blag it, I think, somehow, some affiliation with students, whatever else. But they normally put events on for students. So. Yeah. Shame, really. So, we've covered most at venues. Uh, just to jump back on Uprising, I've got quite, <coughs> there's quite a few questions as well to come later. As I've kind of told you. My... Yeah, I've seen some of them. Yeah, you've seen some of them. Uh, some, quite, some quite cool ones. Um just to chat a little bit about Uprising, we spoke a little bit about the music and the music programming, but also the MCs. Because people are, obviously, I'm guessing most people who watch this have already are into Uprising or have been into it, used to be into it, but anyone that might be watching it, they might be learning about it. If you'd have said to someone who maybe heard Uprising like when they were younger and not heard it again since, and you said to them now, how would you describe Uprising? The first thing they probably would say is about the MC. That's like one of the most significant things. But tell me a bit more about the <laughs> logic of putting that style. And I'm not, I don't necessarily say Uprising was the first place that did it, but yeah. having that style of <clears throat> MC, which from, like, fundamentally is quite different to yeah. that, that style of MCing or rapping and then the style of music to put the two together. Yeah. <laughs> so, again, somebody going to the warehouse back in the day, so seeing like Natty for the first time, like, fucking hell, is this dude, this six and a half foot black dude, he's like, <laughs> just like, with a big deep voice, and he's like, and you can't help but buzz off him. And then I remember the first time I saw JD Walks, and he's in the little corner of the warehouse, and he's like, rushy, rushy, rushy again, and this is, you know, hustle, I'm Jack Russell, and he's like jigging about, <laughs> and I'm just like, who the fuck's this dude? <laughs> And then Marcus just like like a whirl, like, and I'm like, who the fuck's this? And just all those those styles are quite distinct, but very in your face and full on. And, and obviously Danny we work with as well. And, and I think for me the 
when I first heard rave tapes, before I started going to raves, I used to look at the MC thing, oh, fucking MC, shut up, I just want to hear the music, like a lot of people do. Yeah. But then when you're in there and you're on one and you're having a buzz of a night and you just you just can't help but get drawn into it. And obviously there's good and there's bad, and even if they're not great, if you're off your pickle, you get drawn into it. But if they're really good and then you listen back afterwards, you think, oh, wow, I get it now. And although they do trash the music a little bit, I can see why people, again, there's the divide between the Yorkshire MCs and the everywhere else. But they were all brought up around like the sound systems and stuff. And there's a certain melody in the voice and the lyrics and what they're doing, whether even if they've ripped off some hip hop lyrics or whatever yeah. else, there's there's something about that. And if the MC's thinking about what they're doing with the music, and I know Mick Emson spent a lot of time chatting with JD about this and there's some I mean I listen to one of his sets now, mixed sets with, with, with JD on it. And MC it's just like it's like peas and carrots to me. I just listen to it. It's um April ninety five. A thirtieth of April '95. That's how sad I am. <laughs> and it just works, and he just—he doesn't kill the music. He's just enough to chat the lyrics and give you a buzz, but not too much. This like oh, it's too full on, and it, and it just works. And I think unless you've been and seen and experienced it, you probably wouldn't understand. But then when you have been, it'll that all make sense. That's what I was just about to say. So anyone that didn't get a chance to go to Adelphi. For me, some of the most significant things, the music obviously is one thing, but I remember, I can't, I don't know which of anywhere, but once being there and being completely off my head in the middle of the dance floor, and Marcus being on, and it's like, if, if you never heard a rave tape before and you someone said, listen to this and played it with Marcus on, you'd be like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> yeah. Like big, <coughs> rough, croaky, like grunty voice, but in Adelphi especially, it's like, he's got you. Yep. It's like, he's in control. Yep. He's fucking, get your weapons, fucking, uh, him and Jay, and, and, and like, he's got you, and the energy, what he's imposing on you, yep. when you're there, on drugs, in that moment, the, the music's banging out, it's very hard to explain if you've not, not been there, and then, people like JD, with his, JD over that trans stuff, especially like, the faster German stuff, like, the connection, it's, and even in the rave, it's like, it's taking you to places where, yeah, and, it, and to be honest, I think sometimes, you, you said about sometimes the MCs do sound, like they can ruin stuff sometimes, yeah. and sometimes Marcus sounds a lot worse on the tape than he would do live, but someone like JD or Danny EWL, there's some musical elements to like JD's especially, the, the intellect of his lyrics yeah, and the yeah. connection between what he's saying and then the, the melodies and the stuff in the hard trance is like... Yeah, it's, it's a funny one. I think when, when they're on form and they have been listening to the music and recognise the tracks and were, were in the thick of it in, in the era, they, they were superb. I'd, maybe not so much now because they're just they're MCing and they're not as into the music and I think you can sense a little bit of that and when mm. you're here now, they're still going to give everybody a buzz, don't get me wrong, but... You know, I'd try and say, like, I've listened to these sets, you know, I've listened to this stuff and try and engender that. You know, we'd go out to gigs together, you know, me, me and JD and, um, and Mark as well. I mean, Mark, me and Mark, I didn't quite get Mark. And then we went up to, um, I think in 96, we went up to, or 95, I can't remember what year it was. But anyway, we went up to um, Hornsea to um, Atlantis and stuff. And 
you know, we got quite pally and realised we both like lads from the same age and the same era and same influences and stuff. So then that was it. And we're like peas in the pod and beavers and buttheads. So, you know, some of the lyricist chant is coming from that. And, you know, when you've got that real chemistry with the DJ, and I, there's a set that I, I've got from uh, November 96. It was his birthday. It's 8th of November, I think it is, whatever. And he's full on. But again, it just flowed. I, I find myself listening to it again and again and just thinking, if... If I could describe the Adelphi and say what I feel is one of my perfect sets for the Adelphi that captures the essence of it and the energy, it's that set. So go and listen, kids. It's on YouTube. <laughs> but you listen to that, and he's, he's absolutely on one. He's obviously on yeah. off his pick, but he's holding it together enough to be coherent and be on it, and and it's just that's it. And and you think. I can imagine myself there even now. I can remember that night even now, having the banter with him and, and, and listening to him chatting and so trying to like play to his chat and dropping you know, the, yeah, the yeah. slider off so he could, the, uh, this one's yours. And, yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and it's just that chemistry, you get that right and, it, and it's fantastic. And, and because we were genuinely buzzing off each other and we were genuinely mm. having a buzz and a crack, all of us were, because we were all just in the thick of it, that just emanates off into the crowd because it's not false, it's not pretend, it's a, a genuine. It's magical, isn't it? Yeah. You know, there's none of this like love hearts or pretend <laughs> like we're, you know, we're living our best life, Jesus arms. There's none of that shit. It's like this is genuinely a bunch of people who like each other's company, who love what they're doing, who are enjoying what yeah. they're doing, and you can feel it feel and it energy. ripples out yeah. through the crowd and the punters are loving it and lapping it up. And it's just, it's almost like a. It's like a catalyst effect. It's it's mad. Well, hold that thought because we're going to talk a bit about back then and now and, and all <laughs> that palaver. Um, couple more things just in regards to uprising. Um, I wanted to ask you your worst memory from uprising, or if you have more than one, that's fine. And then your best memory. Well, worst one's easy. Uh, that's losing Leanne Knight, um, 28th of June, 97. Grim. Um, I don't, I, I don't want to sort of bring a down on it at all, try and depress people too much, but at the same time, I think it's worth just, just talking about because for a while, it, probably for months, it really turned my head around me. It's probably what you call affect your mental health nowadays, but then I just I was spun out by it all. You know, there I was, event, last I took a turn for the worst. It's a girl who I used to actually train amongst a bunch of others when I was working for the council because as well as being the IT guy I was delivering the training and went to see her and she was sort of all right so I went back home they were like should we go hospital she's all right let's go we'll take her home she wanted to go home so I went back home got back home she was settled down she was all right so I said look I'm gonna go back to the club and pack down and come back and see you so there's a place in um, in Aston on the edge of Aston Swall so I went back to the club did the pack down stuff like that I was with a mate of mine at the time, Spam, who was also in a longer ear. And we get back and sort of sat having a cup and stuff with him and, and she's just started to, to deteriorate and to the point that it like happened, it seemed to happen really quickly and let's just watch somebody die in front of me, man. It's like grim. I mean, I've, I've got me head around now. It's not like I'm you know, going to start falling apart here, but yeah. it's grim. And if you've seen loved ones, a lot of loved ones, when you've gone to hospital and stuff, you know, that's bad and it's grim but it's kind of expecting stuff like that but you know unless in the late teens you know you don't want to see that shit and you know you're trying to like you know kiss her life and stuff and she's there she closed her mouth and I'm trying to hold her mouth open because I could see her breathing was stopping and stuff like that and she remember she bit my finger off and stuff because I'm trying to like 
and it just and they call the ambulance and they come and just and I just remember going away from that and just Mad was just in a spin. It's just like what I've just seen. And after that, it was like I want nothing to do with it. And the lad spammer was with me. He knocked about with a lad called Scouse Roy, who was a bit of a character himself. He's a good mate of our kids as well. And um, I was like, I want nothing to do with this. He said, What's your problem? I said, What do you mean? He said, Did you sell it drugs? I said, well, Of course I didn't. I said, Well, so why do you feel bad about it? He said, Even if I sold it drugs, I wouldn't feel bad about it. I'm like, He said, She's made a choice. You don't know how that's going to affect you or something like that. It's not you've done it intentionally. So you just you, you need to get your head around this shit. And it took me a while to do that. But that that was pretty grim. And that was for me, it was like, I didn't sign up for this. I want nothing else to do with this. You know, that, that's, it stopped being a part and it stopped being funny. It got real then. And I think that for me was the trigger of like just distancing myself and thinking I've got youngster on the way. Yeah, I can't Made you think about life. Oh, God, yeah. Life yeah, absolutely. Whole, yeah. Ab absolutely. You know, um, it really, really was a grim time. And it probably took me, well, I don't know how long it took me to get my head around. I mean, I'm cool about it now in, as far as you can be, but, you know, then it was like, well, nothing to do with this. And that's when the fun stopped. That's when the party stopped. And I think that's also, at the same time as Uprising, or not Uprising, but the scene kind of struggling a little bit. And I just said to myself, I'm out of here. It was kind of like the the... the, the Precursor to retiring, I'm out of here, sort of stuff. Because um, it stopped being fun. And I think if something stops being fun and you're not enjoying it, then if you're taking money off people, you shouldn't be doing it either. Yeah, it's a difficult one because you could just carry on mm. and keep doing things half hearted and. Exactly. But I think things like that really make you put things into perspective, don't they, as well? Yeah. And I guess. Yeah the thing as a whole, like the rave scene and the partying and the drugs and all that, and you're putting on an event there where people know the rave scene is, and, I, and to be honest, it used to be demonised, but actually what we've realised these days is most commercial venues and facilities are, are, full, of, are full of drugs, pubs everywhere is... Well, uh, a couple booze and they're racking up yeah, a line of sniffs, aren't they? But back then, obviously, it was quite demonised, but... I guess to put on an event where someone's come and then that's happened in the night that you've facilitated must have weighed. Yep. Yep, and somebody I knew as well. That was the other thing. I say it's funny, it's not funny, but the coppers remember when I obviously had to go and be interviewed and stuff like that, what had gone on. And um, went with eldest mum and they've said like at the time, said... Um, we, we, we thought you'd gone back to, to cop off or something because they're like trying to figure out what's going on here. What's, okay. what's, what's, what's his game? It's like, nah, no, from what he used to teach kind of thing. It's like, I'm making sure she's all right. Um, but they were like trying to get their heads around it because obviously it's like, has he had something to do with what's going on and okay. all that kind of shit. And it was all a bit, a bit surreal and a bit weird. But uh, yeah, you're right. It was you know, the whole taboo around it. I, I, I suppose I look back now and I think, with all these years on, they're still not offering testing. You know, there's kids going out and necking disco biscuits and no clue where they've come from. You go to Holland yeah. and you go and get tested and go, shit, yeah, don't do that. Over here, you know, it could be fucking knocked up by your scouse gym in his fucking garage and fucking bootle or something and be full of any old shit. And, and here we are all these years on and they've not learned. There is one project, I think, In The Loop, I think they're called, or We Are The Loop, In The Loop, maybe. Um, and they're basically trying, they're getting in at quite a lot of the big festivals and they're basically <coughs> an organisation that, being given immunity to go to these festivals to test. So it's like, you can go there completely confidential, test your drugs, 
and then they'll say like come back in in an hour or whatever and then they'll say yeah they're fine or do you realise what these have got in and for me it's like this is the point what I was saying before is that we, we know people are doing drugs whether it's legal whether you agree with it is irrelevant the exactly. point is, is if there's if Greenfields is on and there's 50, between 50 and 100,000 people there and more than half of them are doing drugs you'd like to think that there's a way for them to know if what they're taking is safe yeah um, and I think the media and stuff's not helped as well I mean I remember the early days of the rave and it all kicking off and then obviously Leah Betts went and all that kind of all over the papers and you get all pious and moralistic about it all day long it is me well you know yourself you've stopped and here's me like sat with this and that's not exactly great for you if you're not keeping it in check so you can get all on your high horse about it all day long irrespective of what you think it is or isn't what you should be doing in the same way that there's controls around that there's controls around cigarettes there should be something around what people are consuming just just to keep them safe if nothing else yeah. that's before we get into any of the other decriminalizing or any of that yeah. shit just just keep people safe for fuck's sake but anyway and what about you? I have to ask you what your best memory is of uprisings. Like, I don't know why I've just said like one bad memory, one good memory, but if you had to pick something. Ooh, that's a tricky one. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Cause I guess from your perspective as well, because it's, it's become work as well at some point. It's yeah, yeah, I mean, there is that. But I th I'd say, I mean, the Stuart and Night in, in Revolution, just because... We got one of the biggest names in the north of England, you know, wasn't, arguably still is, even though he's no longer with us. And here I am playing after him, this, this, this guy who's massive and everywhere. It's the busiest I've ever seen at the club or I've ever been in. It's like, it's just fucking surreal. And here I am, so that was, that was something special. So you said that. about your, your handshake when you were Literally, yeah, like... <laughs> Anyone who's like getting into DJing or might be like, you know, a little bit of experienced, I, I believe that those sets when you're that nervous, the magic of those, when that goes, it kind of, I, I didn't say I lost my passion for it, but the, my, a couple of my mates are getting quite good at the minute and they're getting right into it. And I'm like, while you're nervous, that's the good time because it's like, it means... Yeah, yeah, you give a it shit. It means something to yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you're just rocking up and being like, well, these days it's yeah. not even a needle, it's just fucking... But this is what it's like... It's, it's not good to be that scared that you're not capable of doing your job, but generally that's a it's a positive thing, isn't it? Because it, yeah. you know what you're about to do is something pretty special. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think back to what I said before. I mean, we'll get onto the the, the, the three retirements that I'm sure people enjoy taking the piss out of. Oh, but, did I have that? that uh, yeah, you, you can have. Yeah, 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 come yeah, bring retirement, it. Retirement, bring retirement. It <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Let's have it. Status quo, aren't it? But you know, seriously, it's like you, you've got to have that buzz for it because what? Seriously, what's the point if you if you're not enjoying it? You, if you're enjoying it, then you're going to feed off the response from that crowd, and you're going to want to like some better. Oh, I want to try this, do that, whatever else. Or the alternative is you say, you stick your USB stick in. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. How many, DJs, how many DJs have you seen like that? Or the opposite end of the scale is where they pretend to be really overexciting Jesus on, but they're not. It's the same difference as being stood there still, isn't it? It's, yeah. Yeah. So, the period where you hand, did you hand it over to Bry? And I've had many a discussion with people of what I thought my per yeah. perception yeah. of it was, yeah. and people asking me, you know, so. Yeah, it's. Right. I'll. 
I'll allay fears now, and I know there's a different um, story put out there. It's dead simple. And it ties a little bit with retirement stuff. You know, family life getting in the way. I'm sort of newly-ish married um, to youngest mum. Kenny's got stuff going on with daughters and stuff like that. So we kind of joined forces again in uh, 2001-ish. Um, Bride picked up Revolution, was running with it. Uh, I could run with it and just he, he was struggling with it a little bit. I was going to sack it off. Bryce said, I'll run with it. He ran with it, got it back on its feet. Started talking to Kenny again. We all got together. It was like you know, three of us kind of doing stuff together. And it's round time National Centre. It, it was obvious that you know, I got too many uh, other things going on, too many other things pulling me in different directions Kenny had. So we, we basically agreed and said, look, here you go, Bryce, you, you have it. You know, and, and kind of chatting, from the earlier was saying that, you know, what price do you put on it? When you value a business, you know, and I've seen this working in IT and stuff like that, you'll, you, you'll look at what they, what they call EBITDA, the profit of the business, and you'll apply a multiplier to it of anywhere between three and 10, depending on what kind of business it is, it's subscription, whatever else. And that's what you'll come to, yeah, when you'll have it all audited. And obviously the profit depends on what you've taken as a wage and all the rest of it. So. What value do you put on a rave that's not paying lots of money and you either pay yourself a, a few quid as a promoter or you pay yourself a pittance to show it's profitable to then try and tip somebody up? And even then, you know, some of that's goodwill and how do you know what the business that's going to come from future events is going to be? Is the venue going to be around? Whatever else. And I just, I didn't feel that we could sell something that you you really struggle to put a value on it. It's not like a proper business. Of course, yeah. It's too fickle. You know, we'd just yeah. seen the collapse of the rave scene. It was, still wasn't in great shape, but it was kind of tickling along. You know, and, we, and what we're going to do, sell, say to this guy, you know, give us 50 grand, Brian, because uh, you know, it's got this great reputation. That, that just be, just Cause it just work. I guess, essentially, you're selling something that's quite different to to what it was like if you would have put exactly. a price on it 96 or something like that it's very different yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. we wouldn't have had a crystal ball but no and i just couldn't in good conscience couldn't do that and so we just said look you know there's, there's a little bit of money in the, the kitty so to speak we'll divvy up three ways you just run with it and that's what happened and and, and that's a fact and kenny and brian will tell you that as well so well, any other stories rooms whatever else bullshit um oh, Brian went and, and obviously got back to the Adelphi and then you got the kind of the pickup of the hardcore scene on the back of things like Raver Baby and HTID and yeah. there's quite a lot of young talent. You you start to get a name yourself and Lee UHF, and there was David Dever helping out, so you at Hall, so there's this like all of a sudden there's a bit of a hotbed of activity again and the the beginnings of you know a scene again kind of thing, certainly in the north and across the country. Um, and, and, and Brian obviously did a lot better job of the production. I mean, you know, night and day compared to our bloody homemade efforts. Um, he was much more about that. Well, that were more Brian's, Brian's top move, by the way, for anyone who, who, who doesn't know who's watching, but that's more Brian's quiet production. Yeah, yeah. And I'll say the same myself, you know, when we joined forces again, you know, I was much more about, the, the, I guess, the promo and the kind of, that kind of punky, in fact, it's got, yeah. Brewdog, like a bit like punk IPA was to Lager, you know, we were, we were kind of the punky rave of you know, trying to do things a bit differently and sticking to things the established way of doing it. So I did that. Bright took care of the production, made sure that was all organised. And uh, obviously, when he picked up the reins himself, he, he did a bloody good job of it. What are your thoughts towards 
the direction that it went. And I'm not trying to, because I love Pryor as well, and he knows that. He's a very dear friend to me. Um, it it went in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know, we've had quite many discussions about it. Did it, did it need to reinvent itself? I think, now I look back now, yeah, it did. At the time, because I, it wasn't my vision of what it was, even though I'd kind of given it up, it's like, well, you've given your kids away, so are you to tell the, the new parents how they should bring the kids up? And I've apologised to Brian, I'll do it again for the camera. I was a, I was a bit of a prima donna, a bit of a prick, if I'm <laughs> honest. I'll say that. Um, but because I felt strongly about it, because, you know, whilst I might have given the kid away, it was still my kid, if that makes sense. Even though I felt it was better with the parents, I still felt that I should have some, some input. So I, I did struggle to reconcile that quite a bit. And I look back now and I think, you know, actually on reflection now, I did a bloody good job because he got it right. He got the production right. He tried to bring new stuff in there. He got the right people around him. Like Dave Dev is an absolute star, yeah. um, as we all know, a very underrated producer and, and DJ and a really decent guy. And obviously you've got Lee and Jake, yourself, and, 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 and that, I guess that next wave of kind of talent bubbling through and trying to promote that. So um, you know, I think now I look back, and certainly that mid-2000s to late-2000s, he, he got it, or, or early to mid-2000s, he got it right. And then he obviously took another direction. I think when he got with, um, with Kieran Keyes, um, I really felt that, that was like the sellout that going too commercial. And and again, for for the record, I don't like the stuff, the um, the promotion, the, the the style, as it were. But I look at what Kieran's done. I think fair play to the guy. You know, he he's, smashed it on here. Yeah, you know, he's he's a bright fella, and as a businessman and as somebody who's, who's organised, absolutely, you know, I'll pay respect to that. The music policy, another matter, sorry mate, but I think that's, it's fucking yeah, dreadful. Well, that's the thing, he <laughs> would probably say the same about your style of music, wouldn't he? And that's, it's, it's personal preference, isn't it? It's not, you're not disrespecting someone by... Yeah, but, but because, again, it's because you, when you're so passionate about something, I think, you know, it's probably spilt out and, you know, to others did look like being a bit of a dick, a bit of a prima donna, but it wasn't intentional to be a dick, it was just because I give a shit. Yeah. Even though I kind of hand it over, I felt it was like unfinished business maybe, or it's like I still wanted to, even though family life and other demands and pressures got in the way. It's like a video stomping around out of frustration, if nothing else. I could say that now. I think the one thing to be said about, I, I noticed a couple of differences when, when Bry took over and he did things like the MCs were, this is your set time, he had like a code of conduct, I think I can remember the email that he sent out to us all. I had like MCs are on five minutes before you set and then at the end you are you like so it's one MC at a time and that's your set and when you've done get off and the next one's on. Whereas I guess when Uprising was the polar opposite in back in the day, because it was just like they were all on and chaos. They were ripping ripping mic off each other and yeah. and, it, and it worked. But I, I guess from Bryce's perspective and it, it, what he did work, he brought it brought an amount of order to it and yeah, yeah. you know um, but quite different to yeah very different I mean we were just chaotic and um, almost like it's almost like anarchic it, it, it was like rising sometimes it really was yeah. and again I, you know, when I heard tales of this a second hand and somebody forwarded it to me and I was just like what the fuck's this so, really I understand the principle why he did it and looking back now again it was you know, probably the right thing to do to try and kick people up the arse a bit, but, you know, 
you were like herding cats. I mean, <laughs> how are you going to try and tell like the MCs who have just come and gone as they please? They're yeah, kind yeah. of like they're held on a the pedestal by the punters. You must do this and turn five minutes before I me. Mean, I can imagine what Natty probably said to that. He just probably, <laughs> probably wiped his ass on it and threw away something like that. Yeah, because I would have been like, yeah. fuck you. One massive positive about they, they got the upright, they got Adelphi an uprising going again. Did you yeah, know, oh, like yeah. it was yeah, going yeah. off again. Like, like I said, the eighth, the eighth birthday in particular for me. So that would be like 2003. Mm-hmm. So that's quite a long time since it started and it's gone through all the. 20 years ago, dude. Yeah, mate. Yeah, I feel it. I can feel it. But what my my point is, is you've gone through like the massive peak and then the the year 99, 2000, where it's dropped off a cliff and then it's reinvented. Yeah. In a different guise, but still a lot of the same elements. But the key key component, the Adelphi, is back Mm. pumping again. Yeah. And I, I guess irrespective of what you might have thought at the time about the music policies and the direction and all that, it must have been good to see that place popping off again. It was, and I think certainly now with the benefit of hindsight, I can look back and go, yeah, that, that was that was great. And the mad thing was the last Uprising birthday just recently, I, I played a lot from that mid-2000s era uh, because I thought, I'm sick of doing the whole Tommy Knockers and all that shit. I'm not playing that, I'll say that bollocks, it's not bollocks, but I'm not playing that stuff tonight. And I want to pay homage to that era and pay some respect to it because it was a great time and you know the the early UK hardcore before it just went sorry but dog shit yeah it, it you know you got thin and crispy you know you got gamma yeah, like gamma so I'm gonna say like uh, and Scotty Scotty Brown that yeah, stuff that yeah, I remember the and it I, people might know my DJ journey I, when I started off learning at Jaden I was a kid played like happy hardcore yeah. but I like found a hardstyle through Lee UHF he just gave me a pile of records one day and went here try some like you might like it and I was like that's it but in terms of hardcore UK hardcore happy hardcore whatever we were going to call it back then the stuff that Scott Brown were making and playing and it were going out of Adelphi it had a lot of the trance elements to it mm-hmm. but just so much um, and I guess after the dips of like the 99, 2000 to have stuff going with that sort of energy again, I yeah. remember like Gamma and even Ixie and Darren Styles and people yeah. like that. It it wasn't just chart ripoffs and hands up stuff. There was a lot of good musical there was. stuff being made, weren't there? There was, and I probably probably didn't quite appreciate because my head was probably still a little bit in um, kind of the, the the late nineties kind of death chanty stuff. I was I'm trying to find a, a style because I obviously sacked it all off, and then I had a a bit of a reprise in sort of early mid two thousands, and I discovered hardstyle in myself, and I also got some stuff off Lee. I was buying a lot of stuff in um, Sarge's record shop, spinning. I used to see Alex Kid like almost every week because um, he was in there, knew him because the good grief lads were like just coming, gathering momentum, and I kind of I played from the UK record mid two thousands, but. I didn't appreciate it and I listen back now I think actually there's some really good music around also uh, Recon as well who's gone on to to bigger things yeah yeah uh, yeah yeah. Um, I mean, absolutely there was, there was some good music but perhaps just didn't quite appreciate because I was still in that nah it's not the same nah it's not Tommy Knockers or yeah, whatever's going on in my head because I'd probably not found my little niche and genre um, which I sort of did again in late 2000s which was Weird because I found it through playing for a certain promoter in Hull. That's another story. <laughs> Are we going there now? What? <laughs> you, yeah, you can do it all, mate. I maybe, maybe we'll come on to that. Yeah. And, um, just to pull it back a little bit, and it 
what you just said, you've led me nicely into quite a lot of things uh, conveniently, but oh, good. I, had, I had something down and I was trying to think of interesting things to prompt you with and ask you with that might get you like, catch you off guard. Go on. Do, but what I put down was, do you think Uprising held you back as a DJ in the bigger picture of things? You see, I, I don't know. The reason I can I just interrupt you, the reason I know is because I, I, we've spent a lot of time talking and you're a passionate DJ because Uprising's a massive thing, isn't it? Yeah, but yeah. you're also a very passionate jock that's learned your trade and studied music as well. And I know... I've kind of recalled the conversation we had in the past, which has led me into... <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, without it, I wouldn't be where I am. So you can't really say it's held back. I think the success, when it became a contender and a competitor to other nights, did. And I think that's probably partly because of the way I went about promoting it, because I was a little bit um, in your face, a little bit um, adversarial, maybe. Um, but also, I wouldn't, I wouldn't succumb to that whole, you know, booking swapsies bollocks. Okay. I ref, point blank refused. My attitude was, if I think you're right for the night and I think you'd be good for us, I'll book you. And I want the same from you. But a lot of people like you, there's a little bit of that going on, sort us out, sort us out, and maybe it does or doesn't nowadays, I don't know, I don't care. Because I wouldn't do that. It's interesting because as we got bigger and bigger, and bear in mind, I'm, I'm at the what I'd consider the peak of, of career insofar as I'm running the biggest night, one of the biggest nights in the country. I've got people eating out of the palm of my hand even when I'm playing my sets, just like all the other residents. I've settled into my genre playing the tougher sort of gabber, or a little bit of bouncy, the death chants and stuff like that. Everybody knows me for now, you know, breaking tracks like the Tommy Knockers and stuff that nobody's ever heard from anybody else ever. And yet I'm not getting bookings other places and I'm, and I'm filling a fucking club in Sheffield. So... There was obviously something going on. Um, so did it help me back? Maybe it did, whatever. I'm, I'm past caring, I don't care. I'm yeah. an old man, so what do I care? I've had a great time, so at the time I was really pissed off and at the time if you'd asked me, yeah, I'd have been dead veteran. And, but yeah, it is what it is, right? So in regards to the DJ sets as well, Tommy Knockers is... <laughs> oh, fucking hell. <laughs> and again, it sounds like I'm kissing your ass here. Maybe I'm a little bit, but I've spent a lot of time with you at your house and with mixed records yeah. and you an avid record collector and you a lot more across the board in terms of genres than quite a few people might realise. Mm. How did it feel to be constantly requested the same <laughs> So it is Tommy Knockers in it what were the there's a few in there, you Power know, Jam. Power Jam yeah. so like and Brainwave. don't get me wrong, like those tunes in particular, the Power Jam one, I can remember, that's another significant thing in Adelphi. That bit where all the fucking sirens come on, also, yeah, and all the strobes yeah, are flashing, yeah, yeah. And, and then the kick comes in. And, and it's like, like it just goes and goes and goes. So th these tunes were meant for these moments, but I guess like 10 years later or 20 years later, and you're like, fucking hell, like, I've got more. I've got more to give than just... Yeah, and, and that's, you know, it's, it's, you know that's, that's kind of what's driven me often and, and still kind of like keeps me wanting to do stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm in a position now where it's like, I'm actually quite happy with my little lot, but there's been lots of times I've felt it's like, I've not, I've not quite, had, I'm not quite ready for packing in yet. And so you look through the different genres, so I start playing a mixed bag of everything, then I kind of get into the bouncy stuff. Then I move into the tougher gabber and stuff in sort of 97 time. And then it's all a bit awry after you know, the amp passing, and then 
I discovered new energies. I'm playing that interspersed with like Scott stuff, and I'm loving that. And but then there's not enough material out there, hardcore wise. It's like oh, what I'm going to play. So I'll I'll try and play a bit of hard house and stuff. So like Mara Picotta and stuff like that. Like people are like what's he doing here? But I'm just trying to do something different. I get fucked off with it and sack it off because like with my wife and stuff living over in Manchester way, it's like I've still got the itch for it. I'm buying records and spinning, even though I'm not playing gigs and stuff. And I'm finding myself buying art style or something different. And well, if she wasn't into the stuff I was playing, why don't you play something a bit different? I'm like, yeah, why don't I? So then next thing, it's hard style. So I'm getting gigs doing that. And then that kind of drops off a little bit, um, sack it off. And then I come back and it's UK hardcore. And then I have the, the, the famous, the last recital, the last dance where, you know, it was like the wife saying, or the then wife saying, you know, sack it all off, got family and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, you're probably right. I've got a bloody demanding job and all the rest of it. And then literally, we then are splitting up. So as the August is coming and I'm playing this event, whatever it was, knowing that like we're, we're talking about divorce and stuff, I'm thinking, is this a little bit hasty, this? Because I want something to keep me out of mischief. Um, and then, of course, the inevitable happens. So then I thought, well, I'm not going to just pop back up again three months later. And I'd sacked it all off. And then I go back and play for a certain somebody and it's like I try and the side trance. So I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is I'm constantly trying to evolve and, and, and do something different because I don't just want to be the, oh, it's the, the guy who plays Tommy Knockers and all this stuff, you know, music from fucking late 90s. But when you struggle to get people to get into what you're playing, it's like you're faced with that dilemma and then that's when the, the pub stroke mobile DJ kicks in of the crowd's, the crowd's not having it given what they want. So you, you, your default position is to go, okay, I'm going to have to try and work my way into something that I think is going to give them a buzz. And, and, and then you feel like you're, you're compromising yourself and it's that, that, that dilemma you're wrestling. It's, it's, it's a tricky one. <laughs> yeah, that's a tricky one, Matt, because your creative juices want to flow, but you... Yeah. Again, I think I, I, my experiences, especially last few years in clubs, is a lot of DJs would play what they want to play irrespective of... So if they've got a load of new stuff and they're wanting to play that, they'll play it. Yeah. I'm not necessarily gauge what's happening and whether yeah. this is right. This like I've got these exclusive tracks on this producer sent me all this new stuff and I'm or I've made it in my bedroom and I'm gonna bang it all out and I don't care whether it's going off or it and this is my set and Well that's nice, we've got a lot of modern DJs now and, and music in general. So we're past the vinyl era, although it's making a resurgence. And the good thing about that was people were making that, they'd make money from making the track, there's no money in it. And the reason people make tracks now I've done for years is to get on as a DJ. Now, I personally think there's an arrogance in that. And I'll go out and say, I don't care if someone wants to come and give me some grief online, fuck you. Because if you truly think that the music you're making is better than everything else out there, and that's all you're going to play, your own stuff, then as far as I'm concerned, you're a prick. Your head's up your ass, And I will argue the toss online with all the flack that comes on this afterwards. Now, there are people who make good music out there, really good music, and are really on it, but I still think there's an arrogance to think that it's only your music and nobody else is good enough, because the job of a DJ, in my opinion, is to find the best music that you can that's out there to play to that crowd in front of you and have that ear for it. So it can't be just all yours, surely. It's not to self-serve, is it? It's to provide... Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yes, you might want to play your own stuff to promote yourself, and maybe the stuff you've played is good, no question. I'm not saying people haven't done that, but... An entire set of your own stuff. It's you, gonna have to be. You have to be pretty well special. it to be. Yeah. I mean, there are exceptions like Mike Reverie who can play yeah. for us. I mean, he's brilliant. I mean, Scott, fantastic. People like Scott Brown. Scott, yeah, absolutely. 
But even then, the play of the stuff, you know, Briskin yeah. people are superb. And I think the job of a DJ, you're a, a curator of music that you bring together to suit the mood of the, the, the crowd and the event that you're at. You know, and you can be a creator in that and you know, create your own stuff and curate that with everything else. But I just, I, to me, that's one of the fundamental things that's, that's, that's gone awry. It was never the, the, the job of a DJ was to go and see, look at the Northern Soul guys. They go and they find those oh, yeah. obscure tracks like and yeah. proper geeks. I mean, Jake, yeah, Jake Nichols, yeah. he's a proper music geek and he's brilliant for it because he's like into that and he's lit up by that. You know, and you just think, that's how it should be. I just want to say, yeah, I just want to say a big shout out to Jake. I don't see Jake as much these days, but I spent a hell of a lot of time with Jake. Yeah. And Jake used to invite me and a select few others back to his house for like an after party, after uprising. But a Jake after party would be so to explain. It's kind of like if I went back to an after party in Kivo, it kind of be like everyone just getting as off the head as they could, an uprising tape or CD on, and everyone just kind of carnage. Whereas Jake could have this like. He'd have his select audience back and he'd put some trance music on and he'd be like, <laughs> describing you that, listen to this bit, brother, like this and stop. And then he'd get up and check everyone's hand and hug everyone and stuff like that. He's like, <laughs> but very, in terms of it, very in tune with his music and yeah. what a guy. But that's what, that's what the scene, you know, you need people who are just mm. nerds about it, who just yeah. want to find, it's like that, that chef who wants to find that dish and go, oh, you've got to try this yeah. and that. That to me, that's the beauty Jake, of it all. Because what Jake's bringing into the table, Jake's not someone who's big on social media and he's, no. he's, he's, he's not one to go in front of a camera and talk and stuff like that. But actually, in terms of delivering a DJ set, I, I mean, Jake was one, especially in the, like, he's not new, new, but he's of the newer generation uprising in terms of programming in a DJ set mm. and actually thinking about taking people, like we spoke about taking people on a journey and actually it's not just... Slam a tune in, slam another tune. You're actually taking out Jake really on the money. Oh yeah, the nerdery of it. And again, so, so that to me, the the art of DJing, and we get onto the whole um, you know, modern technology thing. You know, I don't have an issue with modern technology per se, if it's used for people to then try and do something kind of next level, something special. So. I go and see gigs and then people there, the whole you know, vinyl, you know, shut up granddaddy, it's an old dead format, whatever. And I think, well, but I'm standing watching you mixing your CDs or your USBs now, your WAV files. You're not doing anything else other than just doing that. And the skill that you had to have to do it on vinyl, to know that music, to know the BPMs and all the rest of it, that's gone because you've got a WAV, WAV file displayed there so you can see the highs and lows and the breakdowns. You can go, there's BPM. Even worse, you can just sync it. So if all of that skill and that hard work's been taken away, what are you replacing it with? And if you're not trying to do something different, like looping, cutting, If you're whatever, not building on it, yeah. Yeah, or yeah. able to, whatever else, and you're not reading that crowd in front of you, then what are you doing? And even worse, when you shove a CD in and be Jesus songs, I mean, like, what the fuck's that about? So, again, if I sound like a grumpy old man, well, well I'm not. I just think it's bullshit. It's almost <laughs> as if I planned this uh, to <laughs> oh, perfection, right. and I didn't. My next one was, in fact, two points, and they're probably the same kind of point. What are the most significant differences between an uprising event in 1996, for instance, to 2023? And then also the next point was, what are your thoughts towards the rave scene and the culture as a whole now? 
Well, does my opinion on the second question matter? Because I'm an old man, but I'll, I'll answer it. <laughs> if, if, if it does matter, yeah. Um, I, I disagree. Just <laughs> uh, but the first question about... I think the challenge with Uprising is that you've got a lot of people who were in it right at the very beginning, you know, people of my age, so old fuckers like me, yeah? <laughs> you've then got people who come through in the different eras, like yourself came through in that, that mid-2000s era, and probably people who come in like the, 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 the tens era, as it were, even though we've been a bit hit and miss. So you've got these different people with different perspectives. And because the modern predisposition is a bit more commercial or has been, um, as opposed to me being a has-been, um, you've got this real weird mix that you're trying to appeal to. And I was not anti the newer stuff, but I was a little bit indifferent. And when we did the last event, we booked like Mike Reverie, we booked Club Filler, you know, as well as you know, Mark and stuff. And there's a bit of grief about it, and people say, oh, it's just turned to the same and all the rest of it. And I'm, and I'm like, I was a bit bemused by that, because I'm thinking, well, that's, there's only two more modern name DJs and what we're trying to do is we're trying to tread the balance between the two because again you know I'll keep playing fucking Tomahawks and stuff and that's why I chose to not play a, a really old set and I stood and I watched Mike Rivera play um, what he was playing and I watched the reaction of the crowd and it's, it's some of the vocalists I didn't recognise the tracks particularly but it's like he's rehashing re reworking what he's done I seen girls on the front row like chanting along but at the same time, it was banging what he was playing. You know, yeah. Even I felt that although we are teaching on the happier side of stuff, maybe teaching towards a more commercial sound, it was actually still really good. As, as, a, as a DJ and somebody who's dabbled in production and, and all the rest of it, I could appreciate what he's done. I thought he was really good. Yeah. And the reaction from the crowd said it all. Yeah. And that was, I won't say it was mere epiphany, but that was my realisation that, you know, what you see as a genre of music or other stuff, given that you're a man in his 50s, isn't necessarily what the people who are coming out want. So you have to accept that and roll with it. And even Club Filler, who was playing, he plays on happier stuff, he, he played tougher. I could tell he played tougher, he read the crowd and fair play to him. So you've got this interesting, almost crossroads, or this, this can, we, can we bring along the people who have always been around and still want to go out and party every once in a while and appreciate you know, the, the nod back to the past, but appreciate what we're trying to do going forward. And I think there's all, the, the, the essence of Uprising has always been a little bit anti-establishment, to be multi-genre, to be a little bit punky, you know, a bit punk IPA, but you know, screw the system, you know, and not completely roll over to, to commercial. But you know, you've got to mix it up. And I've always thought that see some of these Gabonites and they get really sniffy about, you know, even if it's a little bit bouncy techno and stuff, and there's that, yeah. almost that snobbishness about yeah. it. And to me, that's as bad as going full-on party mode. You've got to tread between the yeah. two, and it's that. So so to ask me where the direction is going, I mean, we've got Jamie and Jake who are coming in and kind of bringing their influence now because they're still gigging out regular. To me, that's the right thing to do. And um, Jamie gets the ethos of uprising and the, the spirit of what we're trying to do, as does Jake. Um, so I've been for myself, Kenny, Brian, whatever, in the background. Um, hopefully we'll, we'll go forward and, and we'll, we'll keep the imagination of people. And even if people are a bit more commercial, whatever else, we'll kind of tread that line. I think there's a place for what we do in the modern world. The thing I, I, I always get, can't get my head around is why do young people want to hear a manufactured sound that's, that's kind of 
it's come mainly from things like the casinos and the like who are trying to yeah. replace the, the Tom Jones and the Shirley Basses of the day. So the EDM is, is this like backward fucking deformed cousin of proper dance music. Yeah. So why do you want to have that stuff that people are dictating to you? You know, I'm not the 53-year-old guy yeah. saying what you should listen to. I'm saying, you know, if back in the day the rave tours was the counterculture to the mainstream poppy stuff, then surely today's underground scene should be the same, otherwise it's not underground. Absolutely. And I, well, I guess we had this chat before about how socially things are quite different these days and um, how people perceive music and other things in life really is quite short, quick dopamine burst yeah, and it yeah. quick hits. So you're battling against these like fundamental societal changes, aren't you? That, yeah. Um, y- y- if you just ignore... Like, it's very much phones out, filming things, one tune coming. Even people like Club Filler and stuff, they'll be banging tunes in quite quick. And because yeah. I think, whereas we said before, people would, you know, like Power Jam, for instance, would play for seven or eight minutes and, mm. and, and keep going and rolling and getting better and better. Whereas these days, I think, what well, you've got to keep uprising relevant. And like you said about, like, you've still got the, the older ads that are like passionate, people are passionate about uprising, but. They're probably not going to fill a club up these days, no, are they? No. So you're talking what 50, 100, maybe a stretch. So really, if you want to keep it going and keep it relevant and fill a club up, you've got to uh, adapt, haven't you? Yeah, you absolutely have. And I think you can uh, adapt to the times without you know completely you know selling out or as we used to say back in the day in the olden days or kind of compromising the the integrity of what you're about. And there are other events that seem to do it. And there's other labels that's kind of sprung up and there's you know, labels that have stood the test of time like you know, Lunacy's Night Force and they're producing artists mixing the old and the new and, and others. So, and on vinyl as well, which is nice to see because it's collectible. I mean, sorry to harp on about vinyl, but you bought something, you owned it, you held it in your hands. You know, there's something about it. You know, people I knew from back in the, the early days who went out raving in the early days themselves bought vinyls, even though they were just regular people. It wasn't just the preserver DJs. And I think that's the problem using it. It's become so disposable and you know, it's on a Spotify or whatever else. Will it ever stand the test of time? Will, ever, will you ever see a Jones and Stevenson first rebirth or something that, like that? That, tr- like that track, for instance, still bangs now, doesn't it? Like, there's so of course much, it does. And <laughs> I, it's not to say that someone couldn't make a, tra- a track now that <laughs> doesn't have that value. It could be made, but generally... The time and effort, what you'd have to put in, and the thought process. Right. So yeah, I've got a controversial opinion on that. So another one. You want to slate me online? Bring it on. The pro- the other problem with making music or music being made, in my opinion, again, back in the day, outboard instruments. So you wanted to make music, you had to go and buy yourself a copy of Cubase. That cost you big. You have to go and buy some instruments, or you have to go and buy a sampler. So there you are, you've saved up, stuck it on your platform, whatever else, you've stumped up a load of dough, you've bought some stuff, you want to dabble at being a producer. You've probably just spunked two, three grand on it. So guess what? You really need to figure this shit out. You buy yourself a big bag of weed for your creative juices or whatever (laughs) you do. I'm not condoning it, by the way, but other drugs are available. (laughs) You go in there and you bury yourself in your room, whatever else, you start experimenting with the synths and, and learning synthesis or sampling and thinking of tracks you like or whatever else. And it was that experimentation and that process that often created the germ of an idea that became that monster track. 
So that was then. What have you got now? You got now. You got. You can get knockoff software. You can get you can a lot of presets. Phone, can't you? You, could get, uh... you can buy presets, whatever else. You can buy the, the Mike Rivera pack. And I'm not knocking Mike, I'm just saying for, in, for instance, or whoever's pack. So you can buy these preset packs and you can chuck it together. And what's happened now is back then the production wasn't as good. So the, the, the soundscape was quite flat, quite sparse. Whereas the focus is too much on the production and not that initial sound and that germ of an idea. So you, you basically, you, 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 you can't polish a turbo, you put lots of glitter on it. And I won't say every bit of music's like that, it's being unfair, but you get my point, it's, if that original idea and that, there isn't that hook, that riff, something that becomes something really powerful, no amount of production and filters and all the rest of it is going to make it any better. A shit idea is a shit idea. And I think that's what, from, and I know you, you, you dabbled a little bit with production, and for me, it's something that I've tried and... I, it doesn't get my creative juices flowing. No. And I think that anyone can, you can learn how to use Photoshop and learn how to, the techniques of how mm. to design something, but the actual art underneath it, the creativity. And I think, like you said, if you, these machines, are you creating individual sounds on one machine and you're taking your time to learn that and it's taking hours, days, weeks to do one little thing, you're going to be more inclined to create something with some substance than if you've got everything already made and you're just chucking it out on a template and did it, did it. Yeah. I mean, so, so in my world now, working IT, and there's a big thing about AI and chat GPT, now it's you know, the last who got off with a, the parking ticket, got it to write a letter. You're basically, we, we are running towards that world. So get chat GPT to write a track. Would it be any good? Well, some people might think it is, but would it stand the test of time versus where that person's been experimenting and come up with something and, and, and built on that idea and further produced it. I mean, there's just no comparison. Art is that experimentation. It's that idea. It's that building out that idea and finessing that idea and stuff rather than just a, I'm going to the studio today, I'm going to make a track. How do you know? You can't just say, <laughs> I'm going to make like, a, well, okay, you can yeah, make a yeah. track, but is it going to be any good? You're forcing something out, aren't you, rather than being fluid and, you yeah. know. I mean, you can say I've got a toilet for a shit, but if you haven't got one ready, then you're going to get you're going to get fucking piles, right? <laughs> Musical piles—that's what it is. There you go. I'll get some shit online for this. Who cares? Bring it on. There's going to be loads of talking points. I don't fucking care. I'm <laughs> is the magic still there for Paulo when he hears a great piece of music for oh, the fuck first yeah. time? God, yeah. You know, and I listen to all sorts of stuff. I don't listen to as much music. I'll be honest. And then just sometimes I listen to stuff and it's not always dance music. I mean, got onto, was it recently, well, I said, re, sort of recently, Wet Leg, and it's just like, yeah, what a mad band, they, they're brilliant, like, like a little bit punky, a little bit, um, you won't even remember this kind of, um, oh, so eighth day, Hazel O'Connor, and, and you can hear like sort of elements of something in these bands, and you're like, that's pretty cool. And I love to be like caught off guard with something I wasn't expecting and just go, wow. You know, and, and I, I struggle to find that in a lot of, sadly, in, in, in dance music because it's all samey-samey and because of what I just described, like just it's all presets and chucked out and stuff. I don't hear stuff that really stands out and I go, ooh, wow. I mean, I still buy Death Chance stuff. I mean, uh, just, yeah, and, and even some of the older stuff as well. It's, um, you know, whether it's Discogs for some stuff, it's come up for the right price, or whether it's like, you know, the new releases. I mean, I've soon as Death Chant 100 is out, I'm like, I'm having it. Yeah. Got producer signed like a fanboy. So, <laughs> so there is a buzz from that, you know what I mean? But um, yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, uh, but it doesn't just have to be hardcore. Now. It can it can transcend lots of genres and it can be more mainstream stuff. On that one, as you just mentioned about producer. I know you were a massive influence and brisk as well. Who are the key people in that regard? Like your favourite DJs and people that you know. I don't know. That's a pretty tough question to ask. It is because uh, because lots of people have you know. Um, I mean, the early days of the warehouse, it was here people like Cole Cox, who, I mean, he was multi-genre, you know, he'd play everything in a set, and it was like, that was the brilliance of it, and it'd and it work. Um, so Coxie, you'd get, um, you know, Loft Groover, um, Easy Groove, you'd have all the Europeans that Mickey Emerson was bringing across, even Mick himself, you know, when he, went, he was playing more mainstream stuff, and then he went into the trance, and I can remember that shift in, like, sort of, 93, 94, you know, listening to stuff Kenny played, you know, there's a couple of tracks I bought because of what Kenny's played, and, you know, um, obviously Brisk, massive influence, you know, friend, but also I was a fanboy as well. Um, Clarky, I love the stuff that Clarky was doing. I love Sharky's stuff when he was doing the new, new Energy stuff, and, you know, Kev Energy as well, it's like brilliant. Um, so, yeah, it, it kind of varies, and there's, there's, there's lots, and, and of course, you know, producer and Hellfish, I mean, I love the stuff they were doing, I like the stuff Dolphin was doing. Um, and would love to still be impressed. I mean, you know, people like Radium more recently, um, Anger Fist. I mean, I've, <laughs> I was playing French core when people like, What's, what the fucking hell is this? I remember like 2013, 14 at Uprising, and now French core's a big thing. It's a know. big festival sound now, isn't it? The film <laughs> festivals, <laughs> you know, and a psycho and people like that. But back then, it's like, Oh, well, fucking hell, it's a bit full on Paul O's playing, and just like. And maybe I need to find another genre that everybody will think is shit and then in five years' time they'll like it. Reinvent the wheel, nice. mate. I'm, 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 I'm done, mate. I'm out of here. Um, we've got a few questions. Go on. On social media and points as well, people have meant. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with the questions and I'm, we're going to round up with a point what someone makes. I want your, your thoughts on that. Lewis Waldron, which DJ that you booked did you most look forward to hearing? These are some tough-ass questions. Hmm. Recently, I said Luke Producer went uh, for, for birthday. It's like, I just, I said, like, do a history death chant set, and he did, and like, like, I see. Is he still quite violent behind decks? I didn't see his set. He used to be, like, bobbing up and down. Full and, on, yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely, yeah. He's just, <laughs> he's just mad, you know. It was a bit surreal, I like, yeah, I was quite, quite look forward to that. Um, Ooh, a tricky one. Stu Allen must have been a big one as well, because he was a... Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was just brilliant, you know, I mean, just, just reflect on that. I mean, we were, in fact, interestingly enough, I've just had an email today to ask if I want to play for the next one, which is like, yeah, fuck yeah. Uh, <laughs> who wouldn't lie? Uh, we played the last event, obviously, by myself and Renati. Um, but Stu was brilliant. It was just such a thoroughly nice guy. Um, you know, he had a certain style and, you know, kind of say he played, but, you know, just... People loved it. He always put a good set on for us. Um, I mean, yeah, Brisk as well, to be fair. I mean, obviously Paul's in um, Australia now, but brilliant play, good set. Um, yeah, probably those guys. Fantastic mix of Brisk. I can remember standing behind him and watching. Yeah. And you know when you learn how to DJ? And even back then, it were quite a bit more technical on vinyl. I watched him once. In fact, he played at Rotherham somewhere. Um and I stood behind, like literally behind him and watching him on fade on crossfader. Yeah. And I'm thinking, so this would be like 
CDJ times. He's not vi- I don't think he on vinyl, but he's still doing stuff, cutting and chopping and stuff yep. like that. And I, th- I know you kind of that was quite a bit of your style as well, weren't yeah. it? I remember I played back to back with him a few times, and first time it's like, fucking hell, you know, you think, oh, I'll play back to back, be fine. And that's when you realise, not just watching, but actually having to work with him, you're like, eight bars in, and he's bringing that mix in. You know, not 16, not 32, eight bars in, he's bringing that mix yeah. in, and he's on it, and he's tweaking it, and it's fucking beat perfect. Yeah. It's like, fuck me. Because you hear other DJs try to do that, and it sounds car crash, yeah. but he's. Yeah. yeah, it was just first time was tough. Second couple of times, I feel like I, I kind of held my own. Yeah. But I'll tell you now, it's a, that was a fucking wake up call, <laughs> that man. <laughs> yeah, what else do we have here? Um, what was your favourite year to DJ in at Uprising? That was from Paul Myers. Um, I mean, I would have said for a while, I would have said 97, um, or be up until up until summer and the inevitable with Leanne. But um, I think more recently, I, I quite enjoyed 2014 as well. Okay. Because, yeah, because I was kind of like, Gustav going on, me and Alex being together for a little while. It was run up to our wedding. Um, 2013, maybe 2014, that's kind of era. Because I was really enjoying the French court. I was really, I felt I was finding my niche and obviously me and Bri were doing stuff together. And it was quite happy to let me just run with it, and it, it suited having that, that that tougher sound just to, to kind of round off the the other genres. So I was just let loose, do what I want, and I kind of got that freedom to do that. And although people didn't get onto it at the time, then people kind of come after and say, "Oh, I really enjoyed that set." So yeah, I said 2013, 14, probably. Didn't expect that. Thought it would have been mid nineties. Um, next one, Robert Greer. This one's a bit left field. Go on. How did MC Beats, so your brother, fit in with him being the only white MC? <laughs> That's a bit whitest. Yeah. <laughs> well. He did put a little bit more spiel on the back, but I kind of just. Uh, right, okay. Be interested. Yeah, no, he did, he did say that he thought he were a really good MC in his own, his own way, but his style were considerably different. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of talk about this earlier. Oh, yeah, you just got on because you're Paul. So, the bottom nice line street. is. Thanks, Siri. Siri's um, <laughs> picking up. <laughs> yeah, fuck off, Siri. Um, so we were all going out and doing a thing at Norma Jeans, and there's myself, there's our kid, there's Unity, and there's Danny Edelblad, and they were kind of building the little thing and getting the little flow. And the, you know, when our kid was on it and he was really into it and he was into his music, not saying he isn't now, but he was, he was kind of. Putting the putting the putting the spade work in, he, he he was doing pretty well. So he got his own sound, just like Unity had as well. He was also yeah. another white guy, but you know seemed to hold his own. So it just gave a bit of a, I don't know, a bit of a different sort of flavour ingredient to the night. Yeah. You know, you look at events now, and everybody's got the same MCs on. I mean, we we had obviously Danny, and then we got Dominic as well, Derma. As well as obviously Natty and JD and Marcus, who were like the, the, yeah. the three wise men who were playing everywhere. So, tried again, it was a conscious decision to try and mix that up and not just rely on those three, yeah. but build out our own. Yeah, when I kid, to his credit, built, you know, he built his own fan base and got his own following. Yeah. So, you know, I, One, I think it is. I know I told you this before, but like I was probably more into MCing than I was DJing when I was younger. Yeah. And I had my list of who I thought were the favourite ones, and it used to think it in. 
I never regarded Joe Ian as one of the, my favourites, but that's Stu Allen tape. The majority of that tape is Nats and Joe Ian on back to back. Yeah. And that's my favourite. They had this thing where he, Nats doing a bit and he jumps in, yeah, pops yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, yeah. you know, so yeah, he, he more than all his own. And obviously, Carl Space came in at a, a favourite yeah. art mode, who's, who's another completely different style, really. Yeah. More, rib, more like Ribsy type. Yep. Hosting. Yeah. But whereas a lot of the, the to his credit, the, the white MCs are a bit like a Poundland M&M, it's like biddy, 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 because they're, <laughs> they're trying to ape what Natty and Mark and, you know, are doing, you know, and, and, and you know, you're trying to ape somebody else's lyrics and, you know, the style and everything else. It's, it's, it's not going to work. And Carl, did, Carl didn't, and Ian didn't really nope. did their own nope. their own distinctive thing. I know the Craig Eunice is very there. Yeah, he got his own style. So you know what? It's, that's how it worked. Last thing, what I'm going to finish up on. I saw something quite interesting, and it's from Amber D. So Amber D's a DJ. She just like yeah. plays like Tidy, does all like hard house and all trance and stuff like that. And she posts quite a bit of topical stuff in. A bit like me and you in a way, she puts stuff on to get people talking and mm -hmm. enjoys positive and negative interactions. That's the diplomatic way I'm going to put it. This, this kind of got me and I thought, I thought I saw this like three days ago and I, I stuck it on this. So it says, so it's not a question, it's a point that she made. She put, Amber D, let's get back to DJs being DJs. Stickers back in the dark corners of clubs. I saw this. Put the focus back on the music. Yep. I'm proud to be from that era before yep. it was cool to DJ. I know things have to change, but what remains is integrity. Absolutely. What are your thoughts on that? Bang on the money. It's said it all, you know, and it's, I'm not denying anybody having the moment of fame or anything else, but, you know, I've, I've even some events recently have kind of folks popping up, and I just think, why are you doing it? You know, why are you doing it? If you're doing it because you want to be famous, well, go on fucking Celebrity Big Brother or something like that, or who knows, well, go on Celebrity Big Brother, because well, mm. maybe you would, or do whatever, do some reality show, do that shit, you know, if you want to be famous at any cost, it's like people want to go on X Factor, I kind of understand that you want to get on, but that's not the way to do it. You know, let that artistry, I sound like I'm bigging it up, but let that be with people who, who want to do it because they want to do a good job and entertain people, and, and that overrides everything else. You know, the fact that somebody said that you looked at videos of the warehouse and people were just like facing all directions, weren't looking at the details. That's what I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, it was like brilliant. For, for quite some time, I got away with being able to go lots of places and, and nobody knew who I was because you, you like, didn't know who Paulo was, which was brilliant. And it's quite funny now because now I'm an old twat. Nobody knows or cares who I am either because I don't do the whole, you know, stuff there and chasing the image and profile or anything else thing. So kind of suits me. And I think she's she's making a perfectly valid point. I think it's it's absolutely what it should be like. Because I think taking into consideration what things were like back in the 90s and then thinking about things now. So you think about if a DJ's playing out like some of the big events, some massive screens with the name on and the spotlights are on them. And, and I get it. I think... One of the terms I thought about is that they call it more of a show, and that's more of a show. Whereas, like the first uprising I went to, if you remember the, the Nelson Mandela one, the DJ were parked off in corner. Yeah. So naturally everyone's facing towards MC. Yeah. And I, I, I genuinely reckon a lot of the time at uprising, me and my mates that went, I would because I was more into the DJing and the tapes and all that, 
I knew who was on, but a lot of my mates had no idea who were DJing, who were MCing. They were just there having the lot up, having a party. There you go. But why should they care who they are? Why, why, would it, why does it matter? You know, it's like, I'm not bothered about having the big screens and all the rest of it. I just, I... I, I think to get someone to come up after your set and say, that were a really good set, mate, nice yeah. one. He's, he's, and you know they mean it. That's, that's, that's way more They've took time to come and find you to say... Yeah. yeah. Whereas I think these days it's all social media and spotlights and flashy lights. Yeah, yeah. You know, getting the likes and stuff. I mean, my fan page, how many likes have I got on that? I don't know. I'm not, I can't remember the last time I checked. It might be a couple of thousands, some of them, I have no idea. I remember when I was booking somebody and uh, I was looking to book an MC and uh, the agent said, oh, it's, well, you know, we've got 50,000 likes. I'm like, so fucking what? <laughs> what does that mean? Is he a good DJ? <laughs> oh, MC, but it's like, I mean, they're all right. But it's like, I don't say it was anything else because they're not bad MC, but it's just like, I was like, they want how much? And so well, they've got all those likes. And, yeah, well, we put events on Uprising, you know, this whole likes thing. I remember showing my lad, it was the one before, it was just before we, we didn't do it because it was COVID. And in 24 hours, we had 48,000 views of the post. The viral marketing was off the fucking wall. Now, obviously, that's people looking at it, looking at it again, sharing it, whatever else. I know that. I can't remember what the new, unique impressions were. But I've always said to Brian this, and he'll tell you, you know, they, they take the whole online thing with a pinch of salt. You know, a thousand people say they go, it's like, no, no. Because it's easy to like, click, whatever. You know, that commitment, that buying, that, you know, that, again, you know, back in the day, you, you, you don't have that now because it's still easy to go, like, yeah, I'm going to do it, whatever. It's, you know, it's not face-to-face -face contact and value, is it really? So a thousand clicks online might be 20 paying customers or, yeah. or something. And, and by the way, half these artists were, you know, so you've got a load of fans in India, have you? How's that working? <laughs> yeah, because that was a controversy for a while as well. It's like, yeah, whatever. Because Happy Hardcore is massive in, yeah. Uh, in India. Yeah, yeah, who cares, right? If, if that's the shit that you, makes you feel better and tickles your tickly spot, then yeah, crack on, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm with Amber, big up Amber. Yeah, great point, Amber. And that, that will finish up there. Top man, Paul. Really enjoyed that. And like I said before, I've, I've been wanting to, to do this for quite a while because I think that there's a lot for people to to learn about, you know. And to get online and slag off. <laughs> it's going to be online. It's going to be on YouTube. It's going to be on Facebook. Please. Yours angrily from Sheffield. Please bring your comments. Positive, negative constructive, not constructive, whatever, bring it, more than welcome, and Paul's more than happy to to engage in that, yeah. so. Behold the field in which I grow my fucks. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, Paul. No worries.